If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome, everyone, to this completely unnecessary podcast for Tuesday, August 13th, 2019. I'm Pat Country. Ian is on vacation right now. So this will be a semi-solo edition of your semi-favorite, semi-beloved podcast covering pop culture, gaming news, uh, movie news, what have you. Today on the show, we'll be discussing... Well, we'll kind of be discussing, mostly me, but Ian will be in some segments. We'll be discussing Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony having new loot box policies. We're talking about DuckTales Remastered no longer being for sale digitally. An NWC cart traded into Pink Gorilla uh, Video Game Store. Uh, Splatterhouse and other games added to the Trevor Graphics Classic. And more, and more topics. So, like I said, Ian's on vacation. He took a trip. Right after our appearance this past weekend at Long Island Retro Gaming Expo. And this is my first time being on Long Island. And it's always interesting uh, when you look at the geography. Like Long Island is on the the Long Island that you see on the map. Uh, you know, right east of Manhattan. But it starts with, you know, it starts with like Brooklyn, right? On, on, on the shore. And that's where Coney Island is. You know, the Warriors. That's where they hung out. Um, and then it goes east to go to Queens where my Mets play. And then, like, there's a demarcation line, I guess, after Queens, where that's, like, Long Island, I guess, because that's not one of the bor- boroughs anymore. That's Nassau County. So I guess that's what you mean when you say Long Island, you're really saying Nassau County. Because uh, you could be on the, the island that may be long, but that could still be technically New York City. So I was in Long Island for probably the first time. You know, I don't have any relatives in Long Island. No reason to go to Long Island. You know, Mets games, I guess it's almost Long Island, but it's not. That's still part of the boroughs there, New York boroughs. So we, we had a great time. It was at this uh, a, the Cradle of Aviation Museum. So a picture of gaming uh, convention with, with like huge, you know, old, you know, U.S., you know, fighter jets and, and things like hanging above you. <laughs> like, like not models, like real planes hanging above you. And three-tiered event, you know, three stories, lots of natural lighting coming in. Great setup. They had a great console museum. On the third floor was a PC museum. You could play everything. Uh, good arcade. And, of course, the vendor hall there. You were, me and Ian were hanging out. And, you know, Ian's selling his little his little uh, purple uh, pixel, pixel-sickle, pixel-sickle keychain stuff. Selling a certain NES guidebook. Um, and then I was right next to uh, the best vendor I could possibly be next to. I was next to uh, a nice vendor, nice guy. We talked a lot. We debated a bit. A vendor selling exclusively graded sealed water games, and we'll come back to that a little bit uh, later on. But one of the one of the main things, one of my main goals going to Long Island was, I I, I needed to get a slice. I needed to get a real real slice of pizza. And I wrote about this on my Patreon uh, about there is a significant difference. 
between uh, pizza from, if you want to say the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey pizza versus pizza almost anywhere else. It's a significant difference. And as soon as I bit into that slice, it was like uh, 10 p.m. Friday night. Uh, it, it was delicious. And, and 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 why is there a difference between how they taste? Well, the, the, there's a couple of theories, but there's, there's only two, I think, that hold any water. And it's the fact that the water is different. Um, and due to the different minerals and, and chemical makeup uh, of, of the water, uh, it, it creates a different tasting dough. And I could say for a fact that's true. Um, and even when I came back home, I had pizza in the fridge that I had ordered a couple of days before I went on the trip. And yeah, I'm like, this is not the pizza dough that I just had. It, it, the dough not just tastes different. It has a different consistency. And it just has a different texture to it as well. So that's the one thing. But the other thing are, are the ingredients. And they're sourced differently. So uh, the traditional you know, Italian pizzerias in New York, New Jersey, they're usually, probably not ex- always, but the better pizzerias are ordering, they're importing their ingredients, their, their, their cheeses, their mozzarella, their mozzarella. My grandpa would slap me for saying like that. It's mozzarella. That's this mozzarella thing. The mozzarella cheese and the tomato sauce, uh, they're entirely different than, than what you would taste on the West Coast, entirely different, um, and that, that's not to say that there's that there's not good pizza anywhere else. There is good pizza. It's just not the same pizza. It just tastes uh, demonstrably different. It just does. And people out there that that are like shaking their heads, no, that's because you've never had pizza from New York, New Jersey. And, it, and to compare, if you if you have, you know why pizzerias are so much more abundant uh, in New York and New Jersey than they are probably per capita anywhere else you know like on the planet probably because it just tastes that much better like i order pizza maybe maybe i order pizza one to two times a month or have pizza one one to two times a month out here in san diego if i was back home it'd still be every week easily i'd be i'd be grabbing a slice every other day uh potentially because it just tastes that much better everything there so that that was a, a fun time. So why do we end up? Why were we eating pizza like ten o'clock at night on Ian's birthday on Friday? Uh, it's because our, our flight was canceled. We had we had the red eye Thursday night. They canceled the flight because apparently there was a uh, a fuel spill right by our plane. So we thought first thought it was that they couldn't refill the 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 plane properly. You know how they locked those those big hoses on, and then we found out later that allegedly the fuel truck ran into the plane somehow and spilled fuel not good either way and so at first they were trying to clean it up but then they're like oh no this is uh this is highly toxic stuff this isn't regular normal gasoline which you don't want to sniff that you get sick this is like highly toxic uh, jet fuel so um we came back the next morning people were upset but hey safety right but then we get there the next morning at first i did delay the flight from eight to ten which is great get to sleep in a couple extra hours um but then they kept pushing it back. They're like, now it's 10.30 now, but now it's 11. So they come on. The agent at the, at the gate comes on and says, uh, we suggest everyone out there that you book different flights. And we can assist you, but we think you should just book different flights at this point to get to JFK uh, Airport, Kennedy Airport. And I've never heard a message like that. Usually it's like, yeah, we'll help you. Or, or we push the flight back a couple of hours. Or I've never heard them straight up say, book your own flights and then worry about, I guess, getting a refund later. So everyone's like, what the hell is going on? And keep in mind, this is like a, a, almost 11 o'clock in the morning. 
And you can't just book another flight to New York that easily. So I started scrambling and looking for flights. And, of course, you know, you'd have probably better luck flying an indirect flight. But being that you lose three hours and the flight time itself on a direct flight is over five hours, you'd be talking at 10, 12 hours of, 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 uh, of overall losing time. So if we left around noon or one, we wouldn't get there till past midnight potentially or might have to do an overnight and get there, you know, Saturday morning. And that and that that'd be that'd be disastrous getting there right when the event started because you know we have to set up we have books there and we'd be we'd be a wreck we wouldn't be able to do our panel on Saturday so I start looking for flights and I find a JetBlue flight that you know that left in like literally two hours from when I was looking and you got to book it I think ninety minutes before for it to be valid and then to check in and get your tell them to get get your luggage the hell off that plane and transfer it you know so it'd be a big big ordeal and that would and they wouldn't. And if I booked that JetBlue flight, this was Delta, by the way, they said we can't, we don't have an agreement with them to like refund your money. So I'd be out of pocket $500 just for me, uh, not, you know, not including Vonnie and Ian who had to get there. And that was 500 bucks for a one way. And I can't cancel the flight to get the money back entirely because I have to get back on the second leg of the Delta trip on Sunday. So I was looking at 500 bucks out of my pocket. You know, I called the organizers at, at Long Island Retro Gaming Expo and they were like, yeah, well, you know, we'll talk about you know, reimbursing you. Very nice about that. But like, that's catastrophic. No one wants to drop $1,500 extra to get three people to an event where it's like, Delta, what the hell are you doing? So it went from disaster to within like 20 minutes, um, 25 minutes of scrambling. Then all of a sudden this, this guy comes out in like the orange vest. I think he's part of the maintenance crew. He was like more reassuring. He's like, all right, we have our work orders. It was like almost like a military guy. We have work orders. We know what we're going to do. We're hoping to get you on the plane. But then like five minutes after that, the agent's like, book your own flights again. So Delta, you gave me mixed messages there, buddy. I can call you buddy, Delta. The maintenance guy's saying it's ready to go. The agent's like, book your own flights because this isn't going to leave in essence. And so it ends up where the maintenance guy comes back on and says, we're going to hope to have you on the plane in like 20 minutes to start boarding. We're like, what? It was like a whirlwind of emotions. And people had already rebooked and left. So we, so we get on the plane finally, only like about, I think it was like 11.30, 11.45 we get on the plane, something like that, because uh, we left around noon. The plane was now like partially empty. It went from being like a full flight to like being two-thirds full. So like, so people were being like pushed up to, the, you know, like the first class because it, it was weird. It was a weird experience. But we got there. We had a great time. Um, I, I didn't spend a huge amount of money there. I bought a Bishu uh, joystick at the event, and I, I bought a couple other little things uh, there, a couple of handhelds. I bought, like, the Konami uh, Top Gun handheld, uh, for example. Uh, but, yeah, had a lot of fun there. So Ian will not be on this podcast, but only in limited limited form because we did the panel there um, on Saturday, and we did about five topics. A lot of things happened the past, like, like two, three days before Saturday, which was great because now – I don't have to work as hard by myself. Like I haven't done a solo podcast like this. I think since Ian was sick and that was let's see, after the book came out. So that was like late 2016 to, I want to say uh, April, May, uh, 2017. So it's been a little over t- uh, two years. It's been a while. It's been like two years, like three months since I've done a solo podcast. I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, solo CU podcast, not the not so common there. So, uh, another quick news that I don't want to do a full topic on, but I have to talk about it because it's insane and it's in the news. Uh, Walmart uh, responded, uh, reportedly responded to uh, the horrific shootings and one in their store. 
Um, and they arrested uh, one other guy even recently that made a joke online about, I'm going to be at a jail soon, get my guns, and go take a trip to Walmart. So now this is like really weird territory we're in. Uh, Walmart reportedly removing violent game ads, uh, but they're still selling their guns. So the response, <laughs> you can't make it up. It's, it's the onion at this point. There's no evidence that video games cause violence. We know that. The same way there's no evidence comic books in the 50s cause violence. Or, or violent music, rap music in the 80s, or Dungeons and Dragons, or heavy metal music. It's a scapegoat. We know that. If you deny that at all, I don't know. We're not even operating on the same uh, plane of reality anymore. Uh, so that's the response reportedly. Uh, the report came from Vice originally, that Walmart employees received memos from corporate headquarters asking for the immediate removal of signing and displays uh, for video games referencing violence. A picture... The alleged memo was shared on Twitter, telling employees to remove your st- remove uh, from your store any signing or displays that contain violent images or aggressive behavior. Remove from the sales floor. Turn off these items immediately. So I guess any display you might have had of like a first person shooter, like Call of Duty, uh, or uh, you know Black Ops. I guess any game like that is Fortnite count. Is that violent? I guess because there's guns. So um, the memo included turning off or unplugging video game. Display units with demos of violent games, specifically specifically PlayStation and Xbox units, in quotes, and to cancel any events promoting combat style, combat combat style, or third person shooter games that may be scheduled in electronics. Third person shooter games, I guess Fortnite. Um, this also extends to the hunting season vid- uh, videos in the sporting goods section. You know what they sell in the sporting goods section? The guns. They sell in the sporting goods section. Not just hockey sticks and fishing rods, it's guns. So you'll have your, your shotgun, your rifle there, and then right next to that you'll have the turn off that hunting display shooting those shooting those ducks. We don't want that, but hey sir, here's your here's your uh, your twenty two and here's your shotgun shells that you wanted here. Um all right. Um okay. I'm not sure what point Walmart's trying to make. Calm people down. I have no clue here, but this is insane. We we have we are we are, we have slid past the mouth of madness. We are now probably currently in the esophagus of madness, and soon to hit the stomach. In 2019, this is this is almost an upside down world we are in when it comes to discussing things of, of this uh, nature. When it comes to gun violence or or protecting our democracy. Uh, the realities, we have people operating in different realities. That's the only thing I can say. It's not even political uh, disagreements anymore. It's uh, agreements on what is reality and what is actually objectively occurring uh, in in the world. And, the, and meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, we had um, our fine president uh, announce uh, rolling back enforcement of the Endangered Species Act from the 70s, from the early 70s. Um, to to probably let probably will t- to, to let uh you know probably mining and drilling on endangered species lands uh, of animals in national parks and reserves and uh, uh yeah it, it, at this point you can't even try to disguise it to be anything for what it is um so um yeah there's a lot of things not to be not to be happy about and and um yeah I like those critters. I don't want those critters. You know what critter wouldn't be around if we didn't have the Endangered Species Act? That good old bald eagle. The symbol of American freedom was was on the brink of extinction at one point. 
And that was one of the reasons why you know, they wanted to get this Endangered Species Act going because there wasn't anything federally mandated in order to really protect these animals from, from being gone. And the, and the statistic I saw was 99% of the endangered species in the U.S. have been saved. Um, that's, that's a damn good, not 100%, that's still tragic for that 1% of animals, but 99% is pretty damn good. And something like the Endangered Species Act helps to maintain that very high you know, uh, level of, of effectiveness of keeping keeping species alive. I'm I'm not sure how I could make that sound any any more important than it is keeping animal species in existence. Sorry, that has nothing to do with video games. At least the Walmart topic does. But um, now it's a semi not so common podcast here. So um, so I, I can't wait to be a billionaire so I can throw all the money at at uh, protecting species as I can. Uh, and making sure these critters, these cute critters, uh, don't end up only in zoos where you can view them. But it's because we're, we're we're living in a reality where potentially in 10, 15, 20, 30 years with, with, uh, with ass-backwards things like this happening and with climate change that a lot of animals you'll only be able to see. In, they'll, they'll only exist in zoos, some of these species. They won't be in the wild anymore, which is why you need zoos, just in case. You know, just in case that happens. Plus, they do a lot of research. Go watch that. Uh, there's on Animal Planet. There's all, a new series about the San Diego Zoo and, and the great work that they're doing there. So, right, we're going to do an Ian-less podcast. But he's not really not here. He's Mario's not really filling in here. But uh, we're going to do our first topic uh, that uh, is going to be um, Ian. Well, Ian's not here. We were at the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo recently. And uh, we talked about a lot of things. The first topic we discussed was about the ESA saying that Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony, they're going to start disclosing loot box odds. They're going to have new policies when it comes to what is really gambling in video games. So we're going to transition to us in Long Island at our panel talking about it right now. Uh, so, so, Ian, you know that sir, in the news, loot boxes... Uh, how, uh, you know, it's been controversial. And yes. uh, and Pat's always proclaimed one of the reasons why that was mood lighting. That was, that was space lighting. Came up. One of the things I said that was always an issue with loot boxes and why there might be regulations is because a lot of times you don't know the odds of getting a particular item. Right. You know when it's a rare item for sale, if it's 1 in 10, 1 in 20, 1 in 50. Especially they do like those like weird weekend rush uh, events you always talk about. Yeah, like the... Uh... <laughs> The uh, special events for Overwatch, for instance, where the costumes are only available for a limited amount of time. Limited! And you don't have a button. Damn it. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, you know, there, there are definitely people who just go nuts on the loot boxes to get the costumes they want for their, their favorite character. But it's problematic because even when you go to a casino, you know the odds of winning. They list the odds of winning. Freaking scratchers list the odds yes. of winning right on the back. So. I always said this is going to be an issue, and now you have uh, uh, you know, government agencies in Europe banning loot boxes outright. In the U.S., they're looking into doing it. You know? So now the companies are responding, and so the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association, and Association announced that Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony will be required to implement new policies requiring the disclosure of all loot box odds for games on their platform. I told you so. Ian told you so, too. I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to yeah. happen. I, I wonder, personally, how much that will affect people buying into loot boxes once they see, um, you know, it's a dollar in a dream. <laughs> it is a scratch off at that point? Yes. One in 50,000 to win the <laughs> jackpot? Yeah. I, I don't know, but at least you have peace of mind to 
you know, to people spending that money. I guess if you're spending that money, you may not care, but at least to parents, they may not know. Oh, yeah, buy a few, Johnny. You'll get that helmet that's available or what have you. It would definitely be a Kevin, not a Johnny. It would be a Kevin, not a Johnny? Yeah. But, but at least this is the first step because government regulation is going to happen no matter what, but this is something that the ESA can have ammunition in their pocket during a hearing. It's going to be weird. I'm not going to look up that much into the crowd. But they'll at least say, hey, listen, government, Uncle Sam, we're trying to do this. Look, we're trying. This is this is a, a preemptive strike against that. My favorite versus. stuffed animal as a kid for a long time was a stuffed Uncle Sam from the 1984 Olympics. Okay. Yeah. Just so you know. Okay. I, now we all know here in Long Island. We all know. Yeah, give it up for Uncle Sam plush. <laughs> Why not? You don't still own that, do you? Uh, no, but I do have the uh, 1984 Adidas Olympic bag that has the eagle on the side. All right. I really like this mascot. You, you like the 84 LA Olympics apparently a lot. The mascot was great. So this is what they said. I'm pleased to announce this morning that Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony have indicated to ESA a commitment to new platform policies with respect to the use of pay loot boxes in games that are developed for that pl- platform. Michael Warneck, E, ESA's cheap, cheap, chief, chief, chief counsel for chief. tech policy said today. <laughs> There's a workshop for loot boxes. There's a workshop. That's an interesting word. I've always wondered, Are they constructing them there? I, well, uh, that's that's. I've never understood why they're called workshops because very rarely are you working or making no, anything. You, you have a box lunch available to eat when you arrive at a workshop, and you talk on a round table, and someone gives a little, you know, a little a presentation. Warm ham and Swiss. Yes, maybe with an apple on the side, or a bag of chips, or a brown cookie. apple. Hopefully, you get a cookie. Really black banana. <laughs> so, so I guess we'll see how this, how quickly this gets uh, enacted. It looks like it's going to be 2020. Um, no later than the end of 2020. I don't see how, why it couldn't be sooner than that. Just, I mean, the people making the games and doing loot boxes, they know the odds. They program them, them into them. They, they know what the odds of getting these objects are that you pay for. So it's not, you know, it's not a secret to anyone. Uh, this is what, what does Sony say here? Sony Interactive Entertainment aims to ensure PlayStation users have access to information and tools such as parental wallet controls. <laughs> That will help them make informed decisions about in-game purchasing. We support industry efforts to disclose the probability of obtaining randomized virtual items, virtual items known as loot boxes, and are committed to providing consumers with this information for all games we produce and publish. Pat, they're not loot boxes. They're surprise mechanics. Surprise mechanics. Surprise yes. mechanics. It's like a jack-in-the-box. EA's like, damn it, Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony, you're ruining it for us. <laughs> um, so, again, this is preemptive, obviously. The fact that they, they could have done this five, six years ago if they wanted to. It's like, why didn't they? Well, no one was on their butts to do it. I mean. So speaking of odds, I knew this idiot in high school who worked at a uh, convenience store, and he tried to run scams on the lottery tickets. Uh, he did. He would pull them out of the roll, and then he would just scan them to see which ones the winners were, and then he'd cash them in. He the, thought he was freaking brilliant, but it ended poorly for him. You mean for the instant ones, I guess? Yeah, yeah. He would just scan them one after the other. He, yeah, he would just pull them and then scan the barcodes to see which ones won. Like, he was the first person in the world to think of that. How quickly was he arrested? Like, within a week and a half? <laughs> yes. It, was, it didn't last long. What? Probably How did you guys ships. know I was scanning tickets that are in your system? <sighs> How did, what? Anyway. Any other random stories that have almost nothing to do with this, Ian? Probably. Plush. Continue. Plush lottery scams. So we have 1984. Was that 1997? That was uh, yeah, like 98. Or anything from 2012? We want to talk about right now that could relate to this story in some strange fashion. You want? No, just... I don't think so. Okay, that's great. You guys, you guys <laughs> are on the edge of your seats there for that one. Um, so it looks like uh, Microsoft and Nintendo did not immediately respond to a request for a comment. 
Uh, let's see. We believe in transparency with customers and providing them with information for making their purchase decisions. A spokesperson for Microsoft said in an email, this is why by 2020 all new apps or g- games offering loot boxes or other me- mechanisms on Microsoft platforms that provide randomized virtual items for purchase must disclose to customers prior to purchase the odds of receiving each item. In addition, we're proud to offer robust family settings that offer further control over in-game purchasing. Take a breath. I am. Okay. <laughs> Got the lights on me. It's hot right here. We're in the spotlight on the planet, planet, the planetarium. Mm. Oh, Nintendo had a response too. Oh, Same oh, sort they, of stuff. Informed cho- choices. Strong. Blah, blah, blah. Disclosure of drop rates. Drop rates. Uh, all new games, same stuff. They were... They were Thrilling. They were, they were lockstep on, on these statements, all three. Yeah. They, got, mean, they huddled together. They, it's like a big mafia meeting. I mean, what are they going to say? We were forced to do it, so we're doing it. Or, so, or Sony says, well, we didn't want it, but Nintendo were, were pulling our arms to do it, you know? Like, they, Nintendo beat up Sony to be like, you got to do no, it. No, they just, you know... They, just they made, raining punches from heaven. They made them an offer they couldn't refuse. You know, Nintendo... I talked about their ninjas. They, got, they have ninjas. Does anyone else have ninjas? No. All right. Anything moving else? on. Oh, we're not moving on yet. So I mean, we have to we have to put a bow on this topic. This this is important. This is an important topic for all of you. Who out here has kids that have bought loot boxes without their knowledge? Anyone here in, in the audience? One, yeah, no. one person. Oh, you don't have a kid. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't have a kid. Anyone in the back there that's hiding have a kid? Who here has bought their own loot boxes? Okay, like a third. 40% of you Pat math Okay This Nintendo What was it Badge Arcade Yeah I'll, I, Sure That counts What's that Ian Nintendo Badge Arcade Was on the 3DS And it's essentially One big playable loot box Okay um, You're off screen Ian That's fine <laughs> No one needs to see me um, You would Get like free coins a day But you could also Pay for more coins And you played like A little crane game And it pulled oh, out badges And you uh, could stick them All over your menu screen God, Do I like the crane game yeah, I do too. That's why oh. I played it. I didn't play it for the badges. I played it for the crane. Okay. Well, moving on. What was that? Was that 2012 story? No. Uh, I mean, honestly, <laughs> could be. Could have Every been. 13 years, Ian has a, as an antidote. And we're back. So that was a fun topic. We made some salient points, I think, or just relaying them in Long Island. I looked like a wreck. My hair was a mess then. Uh, and we're going to see you on the next topic. All right. So, uh... Ian, not here. Ian loves DuckTales Remastered. He doesn't. For some reason, he has a weird hate relationship with it. Um, but DuckTales Remastered, a six-year-old game, no longer available digitally at this point. And we discussed that at the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo. So let's transition into that conversation now. Hadouken! Ian! Pat, your favorite game of all time, unfortunately, DuckTales Remastered, is being delisted. Well, it has been delisted already. I think August yesterday. 8th. Oh, 8th, and then by the 9th, it was gone from all the platforms yeah. there. So it was 75% off. Ian, did you purchase DuckTales Remastered? No, it was, it was sent to me because someone said I had to play it. But oh, it, you had to review it. It took you three years to do it. Because it's, it's not good. The same three years took to get my blood, short, blood sport shirt back, by the way. I thought you were going to say something about your blood sugar. Blood sugar level? It's dropping fast <laughs> because the heat's on me, and I'm losing all consciousness. No. So here's the deal with, with this. Obviously... You have uh, Disney probably had the rights to this for a certain amount of time or had to be re-upped, and Capcom probably didn't get the rights back to continue selling it or it wasn't worth their time or money to do it at this point. Yes. So th- what's, what's harrowing about the situation to me... Harrowing. Harrowing. <laughs> harrowing. This game's only been out for six years. Yeah. <laughs> seven, with, 
Six. Six years. 2013, I think it was. Right. So in six years, it goes from a game that got a lot of buzz and attention. This is a big deal. This was the push of them, you know, the, the, basically DuckTales for a new generation. And then a few years after that, you get the new series. And so in six years, you have this game that got a lot of praise and attention and buzz, and now you can't buy it anymore. At least easily. You can't, you can't find well, it. Well, you can find a physical copy, but that's about, I mean, and those will probably get snatched up. Because everyone likes it but me. Everyone but you. So, yeah, I think you can probably still, let's see, what's this go for on eBay right now? I can't, I can't get to the internet right now. This. It's 30 bucks. It's going up in value. The value, Ian, is going up. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, they, they announced it, and then they dropped it 75% digitally, but, like, for a day, and then it was gone. So the good news is I think on one of the platforms, uh, you didn't have to have it downloaded. As long as you had bought it, you'd be able to download it still. Yeah, that will eventually run out, though. So I, I usually don't mind buying digital games. As a matter of fact, most of what I buy on the PlayStation 4 is, is digital. Um, PlayStation 3. But... So I really like Mr. Driller. I wanted to take Mr. Driller on this trip to practice because I want to get the high score. And I loaded up my Vita, and Mr. Driller wasn't on there anymore. I'm like, uh, I guess I deleted it to make room. So I went to the PlayStation Store, and even something like Mr. Driller apparently has a license that expires because uh, when you go to the, the menu selection and you hit it to redownload it, there's nothing there. It says no file exists. So good job on cleaning up your store, Sony. Um, so I was like, damn, this is awful. It's a tragedy. And uh, so I was looking up other ways to play it portably because I had it on the DS once and I sold it. Um, so there was one on the DSi shop, um, Mr. Driller, I don't know, Drill for Fun and Pleasure. And <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh <laughs> so I looked it up, and that one was also delisted, too. So while I am generally okay with digital titles, it, I mean, even that has affected me. But the story has a happy ending because um, I didn't sell it. It had been sitting on my shelf the whole time. So now I brought Mr. Driller with me. Anyways, yeah, so uh, licenses, etc., expiration, it's bad stuff. Uh, Capcom, Capcom gave a two-day heads up. That's kind of weird. Even with Netflix, you know, stuff's leaving like a few weeks in advance. Yeah, I think Telltale gave people like a month warning in advance before they started pulling their stuff. So, yeah, two days is not very much. Maybe they didn't know it was going to happen. I have a feeling this is going to be like put into law or codified in like 10, 12 years when this happens with every single game where you have to give a heads up that you bought a game. And then if it's within a certain amount of time, like, oh, it's five years later, really? Give me at least two weeks to download it again. If it's going to, you know, if the servers are being shut off, there's got to be something happening because this is going to happen with more regularity, regularity year after year. You know what the word codified makes me think of? Fish fries. And I'm definitely going to get one when I'm back in Buffalo. Cod's a great white fish. I don't know what's happening right now with Ian. <laughs> Uncle Sam plushes and scams being done at stores. Robomart. Robomart, okay. At the corner of Millersport Highway. Okay, Ian, do you, you want to just talk about your childhood and, and weird teenage years during the panel? We could do that. I mean, that's why these, these, these fine. Do I want to? That's what I'm kind of doing. I guess so. You're taking this over. This is, what, this is what Capcom said. If you already purchased it in the past, or if you buy it before the dates and times below, you'll be able to still access and play the game. Okay, thanks. So the servers aren't being shut off, just you can't be able to purchase it. Oh, uh, my point when I was talking about Driller is okay. you won't be able to after a certain point, though. They say you can, but then they're going to sneakily take it away from you like they did with Driller for me. I had bought it. I paid my goddamn money. And, uh, yeah, 
so I couldn't re-download it. Anyways. Okay, okay, that was actually it was related. a coherent thought. Yes, it was. That's something to do with the topic. I have okay. them on occasion. Okay, absolutely. Okay, so they were available until August 9th in the Wii U. If someone still has their Wii U turned on somewhere. PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and Xbox One, and then Steam. I should have bought it on Steam yesterday, but we were stuck on the airplane by then. Uh, see, being on an airplane... You know, they don't think about digital sales. People like us stuck at the airport. We can't, we can't download Steam games. The only easily. good thing about Delta is they offer Cheez-Its on the flight as a snack. If it wasn't for that, I would have been extra mad. A- extra mad? Extra mad. Oh, you were surly that morning. I was. I was not happy. Uh, so here, about the physical versions. Disc baked. Disc baked. Baked. Yeah, baked in. Mm. Disc based versions of the game will install and play normally. And if you've already bought the game digitally, you'll still be able to re-download even if it's removed. Lies. So I wanted to be able to, since I have a certain documentary in the works, I wanted to actually have someone look at the screen of the store shot of DuckTales. And what happens at that time? Do you have until that time to hit the button? Or if that, that box is already open, is, can you buy it? I wonder what happens then. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you click on the title in your store, but you didn't click buy, what happens when you click buy after that time runs out? Is it unavailable, or they give you that no, time? No, no, Sony just leaves a blank page there. That's what I was saying and about you just, Mr. Driller. You just keep clicking I, and nothing I, I, happens? I was looking at my Vita, and I kept hitting Oh, you kept hitting it literally. I was like, no, this is wrong. This is bad. You just missed it by a few minutes? No, no, I, I'm talking about Driller. I, I don't know when. Uh, Mr. Driller got delisted That's what I mean, like but, two years ago. But you can still access where yeah, to buy it. Yeah, so I looked it up because I didn't believe it. I was like, why? And uh, they were like, yeah, two years ago, they are like, don't worry. If you bought it, you'll be able to download it. Just like that BS. Wow. But I can't. They sneakily removed it. Yeah, and, it's it is dumb. And and you and the three other Mr. Driller fans were it's enraged. It's dumb. You were enraged. Mr. Driller's fantastic. I'm not saying, but no one cares. Who here's a Mr. Driller fan? Yeah, five people out of out of a hundred. Those here. are the five best people in here. I can't see <laughs> any of you, but yes. So, uh huh. Driller's not Disney. Would you like the third mic, sir? You want to come up here and, and, and take over the podcast for us? That'd be, that's one thing that doesn't happen live usually. That's Certainly, okay. Sam. <laughs> All right, so we got this. Uh, this is done. We're done with DuckTales Remastered, Dean. It's a done topic. I might, you might have to put yours on eBay now. The Wii U. Yeah. Well, no. No. Someone gave that to me. They sent it to me in the mail. The same, same way you got a certain Bloodsport shirt that... Was sent to you, Pat. You have the goddamn Bloodsport shirt now. It's done. It's I, over. It's I, I want it. I want interest on that shirt. I You're don't know if that means a pair, wear of, it. a pair of leggings. I'm never gonna wear it. No, it's extra large. You wear schmediums. It's not, I don't wear schmediums. This is a large I got on. This isn't a schmedium. All right. Well, it shows your pecs no. like one. You got those muscles. Make me self conscious now. I'm all I'm all flutter. You're chesty. Okay. Okay. Wow. I feel harassed in my own podcast. All right, moving on. And we're back. And that was our topic about DuckTales Remastered. <laughs> we'll see you on the next topic. All right. Um, the next discussion from Long Island Retro Gaming Expo that we did over the past weekend was an NWC cart. Another one in the wild finding its way to Pink Gorilla the game store up in Seattle run by our pal Kelsey and Cody. So we're going to transition to that conversation now. All right. Uh, glorious day, Ian. This is about the third, the third or so uh, NWC cart found in the wild the past 
three or four months uh, that was turned in to Pink Gorilla up yes. in Seattle. Our pals up at Pink Gorilla got one. Um, I don't know the last time one was turned into a store. Probably. Well, technically, well, I guess was it there was, a, there was the one in the uh, that was turned into people that owned the store, but it was from the uh, storage unit. That was yes. a few months ago. We talked about that. Right. I thought there was one other one potentially that was found, but they're popping up. So this was number uh, wasn't two oh eight. What is it? It was what three oh two. Looks way nicer than the one that got turned in. So Pink Gorilla Games owner Cody Spencer, they paid thirteen thousand dollars for the cartridge. It was turned in by someone who didn't know. What the value was, Ian. The value. So they had a bunch of games. It sounds familiar, Ian. Yeah. They had a bunch of games. They, they came into the shop. But it wasn't then, a bag of sports games. Uh, so Cody, Cody uh, was nice enough to say, this is worth money. Um, otherwise, I could have bought it for probably a song and a dance. And then, um, yeah, they looked it up. And $13,000 is fair because they, they won't reveal how much the buyer. They, they moved this within about 24 hours after purchasing it. That's incredible. Yeah. That's insane. Uh, I, would, I would assume that they probably got 20 for it. At least. Yeah. At least. Even that condition, the condition was a little rough, but it doesn't matter. At this point, people are buying these up for an investment uh, for the future. They absolutely are. Right. Um, and it's, I don't know, I, I feel like, I wonder how many more we'll find. Everyone always thinks that every one that's found is the last one, and then another one pops up. Yeah, it's 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 all over. It's, I mean, it's all over America. I mean, the fact that this one was in Seattle does not surprise me at all. Seattle seems to be that's the Nintendo hot. That bed, seems to be obviously. the place to find rare Nintendo stuff. Um, but yeah, everywhere. Is there a definitive number of cartridges? Well, I keep seeing in these articles that there was only ninety gray, and I don't know where that started from. They gave out ninety to the participants at the final, but. It, I guess because of Wikipedia entries that people weren't questioning, every single article and IGN people are coming on in their videos talking about the story, saying there were 90 great cartridges, and no. I, I think they talked to Kelsey who said no. I mean, there's at least, what's the highest number? Like three, almost 350, so there's at least that many if that's what their serial number were, was. They weren't randomly giving out serial numbers to these. Right. So 350 seems to be a good guess. Until three, there's a bigger number found. Even if it's three digits, sometimes cataloging might start at one. There's probably still at least 250. But oh, but there, no, there's, one, there's ones below 100, though. That oh, are there, okay, there yeah. are. All right. I don't know what the lowest number was, but there's ones below 100. So um, so if there's 350, and now we're getting up to what, what did I say last time? There's probably around 80 or 90 gray ones that we know that that we know of that we know of that still exist. Yeah. So maybe a little more. So we're, we're rocketing towards 100. Uh, if one's found every three months, like this, this uh, rate, you know, this, this would be a $50 game in a, in a couple weeks. I wonder when I people <laughs> are going to go to the junkyard and start kicking banana peels looking for the rest of them. Kicking banana peels? Kicking banana peels. Is that an, ex- an old-timey Buffalo expression? No. Kicking banana peels? No, that just came from my head right, right this moment. You know, you slip on banana peels potentially. No, you don't. Mythbusters did an episode on it, and you cannot I, slip on a banana peel. I recall a certain path, the NES Punk episode, where Ian might have slipped on a banana peel. That was thrown by Donkey Kong. Yes, that was very real. <laughs> that, that was, was very that real. That was a real-life documentary. Man, uh, filming that part. It was crazy. I fell on my ass bone so many times. But but, but your your bony buffalo butt is that what happened? My buffalo bone butt, bony but, buffalo but butt. It was all for the art, though. It was all for the art. Yeah, it was fun jumping over cans of baked beans. What was that? 2012 ish, 11. What is your obsession right now with 2012? Because every 13 years something weird happens. Plus, that was the mind mind it'd calendar be, thing. It would be really fun to live until 2112 for like uh, Rush. 
The Rush album, 2112. Uh, I'm not familiar with that album. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, then. Uh, back to the NWC card, Ian. Where were we? We're talking about here ESA. This is done. Uh, uh, Holy Grail. Uh, our, our, so our pals, uh, Kelsey and Cody, running Pink Gorilla. Um, I think it's also like the third anniversary of them owning the store or something like that. It's second or third. Um, but, yeah, good good, good on them. Good purchase. Um, so let's see. Where's the original story here? Oh, here it is. The guy came in not knowing at all what the cartridge was worth. He was pretty blown away with the offer. I made sure to explain to him what the item typically sells for and what we would offer him and why. The seller had no idea what it was nor where, nor where he got it. It sounds like he collected <laughs> NES games a little bit when collecting NES games had yet to grow in popularity. So we're talking probably like late 98, 90s. 98, yeah, 99. Probably went to a garage sale. Former employee was selling a bunch of garbage. And, and everyone was going off of Etler's list still. Mike Etler's list? Yeah. Or if they knew what it was at that point. Maybe this guy didn't know what that list was. Good old Mike Etler in New Jersey. Uh, let's see. Did they get this right about 90 cartridges? Yeah. No, they got it wrong, IGN. What a shock. Uh, while the Nintendo World Championship's 1990 cartridges is often reported to have a limited run of 90 gray, Pink Gorilla Games uh, owner and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, Kelsey Lewin, clarifies that, let's see, that, uh, as, high as, two, uh, as high as 348. Yeah, that makes sense. And, they, and 302 was the one they had in stock. So a situation that happened at Luna Video Games, two locations. Yeah, like, shit, 10 years ago? Was it, it was 2000, was it right after I moved in 2009 or 2010? I don't remember. It was 2009-ish, late 2009, early 2010. I think it was early 2010. I want to say like February 2010, something like Every that. time someone hears this story, no one's ever going to think it's a random sports game ever again. <laughs> yeah, well, you never heard from that guy who traded in. Nope, never came back. Maybe it's this guy. Maybe he's Left like a- me a bag, said I want some hookup cords. I was like... Well, this looks like shit. Said fine, put the bag down, and it wasn't until I went through it five hours later that I was like, oh, fuck, that's what I think it is. Maybe it's the NWC fairy. Maybe it's the same guy here. He just he just drops off a magical NWC cart to random stores throughout the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Johnny Appleseed, planting them as he goes. You leave a Sonic the Hedgehog 2 cartridge on your pillow, and then you see what happens to the store next day. That's what happens. I don't know what I'm talking about nope. here. I don't know what I'm talking about. Just, I'm rubbing off on you. You're rubbing off on me. I'm insane now as well. Uh, okay. Uh, it's the Holy Grail. I'm going to guess it went for probably 25000 I think they talked to, to our pal Super Collector Steve Lynn in one of these articles, and they said at this point it's probably at least 25000 Oh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, Steve Lynn says, I'd say a minimum of 25000 Nowadays, that's probably low given the influx of buyers from the comic slash card slash coin world that I now know and deal with at convention. Dirty outsiders. Dirty outsiders. The value, Ian. Unwashed. Un- unwashed? Well, well, I don't know how they bathe, but all right. Anyway. And money. For the full story and how these cartridges existed, check out Frank Cifaldi's awesome history of the first Nintendo World Championships, or ask him on the floor. He's here at this convention. Yes. Hey, go, hey, Frank, recount your story you wrote, you know, 10 years ago on this. <laughs> And we're back with that conversation, which was fun. This is almost like a, a rejoiner uh, outro. Uh, you know, support the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play Store, wherever you listen to it. This is an audio podcast. Check it out. And we're going to move on with the next topic. Okay. All right. So the Turbo Graphics Classic had some surprise announcements of a, of, of a few new games being added including that gory one, the one that's not ca- causing violence. It's not causing video game violence, but it is a violent video game. And we're going to transition into that discussion at the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo right now. Sure you can! Uh, so we have an announcement 
Uh, well, about Konami's uh, <laughs> adding more games to the graphics class. I'm sorry, married. I got him so I got him so so excited about something. <laughs> he was like, "Yes, see you podcast movies happening." Not yet, not ever. So we got Konami having new titles unveiled uh, for the mini. A surprise, Ian. Yes, they finally got some Namco support and. Uh, it is getting Splatterhouse, which is fantastic. Give it up for Splatterhouse. I think that's, I mean, that's a key a key title. I think more than anything, that's the game people really wanted on there. So the fact that they got it is huge. That's a big deal. Yeah. And I would then, say two or three more other games to really get every quintessential title. but So it's still missing Devil's Crush, which upsets me. Alien Crush is a great game. But Legendary Axiom comes before Devil's no, Crush. No, it doesn't. Legendary wow. X does not come before that's Devil's Crush. That's a quintessential... Crush. Title, it's a great game, apps. but it's not. Pat, your love of, of pinball blinds you, Ian. No, no, it doesn't. A little bit. <laughs> you guys want legendary acts on this thing? Yeah, see? Game of the year, 1989. That's true. I don't know who gave. What? what I don't know what, right, magazine, I've been I don't know what magazine gave them game of the year, but one did, so it's a game of the year if, it, if they did. Anyway, so this is what they uh, they got going on here. They're going to add um, Dragon Spirit, which I forgot to mention. That's a great game on the Trouble Rapids. It is. It's really uh, good. Dragon Spirit. Galaga 88, which also uh, very we good. had Galaga 90 here, so I don't know how 88 differs. It's the same game. It's the same game? Okay. The, uh, it was just released in a different year. Now, I don't know. The Genji and the Heike clans? Uh, that is a Nam. Uh, I believe it's a top-down Namco arcade game. Okay, the Legend of Valkyrie. I love Legend of Valkyrie. That's what's fan- up. Have you ever played it? No. It's a top-down hack and slash. Like it plays like Zelda, but arcadey. Ooh, it's real Ooh. good. You know, there's no language barrier to that. No. Oh. No, it, like it's a pure arcade game, but you know, you're doing the top-down hack and slash and stuff like that. There's even like weird platforming elements. It's super good. Okay, I'm excited. Sarai Senshi Spriggan. Okay, so Spriggan is Spriggan. Spriggan is probably it, it's my second favorite shooter on the PC Engine. Usually goes for about a hundred bucks. Um, it's part of the same series as Musha on the Genesis. And if you like Musha, Spriggan um, is better. It's super colorful. There's lots of skulls, uh, castles, explosions. It, it's a uh, it's a nice time. However. I believe Spriggan 2 was added. Spriggan Mark 2. Nah, fuck that. That game is not so good. Why? It's just more Spriggan. No, it's side-scrolling instead of uh, vertically. Oh, so it throws it off everything? So the, I just don't like the weapon system. The neat thing is, though, as you're flying, like text boxes will appear, and like the pilots will talk to each other, and like you'll get help that comes in and gets shot down. So it's really neat from a presentation standpoint, but the game itself is meh. 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 Okay, so now we officially get to over 50 unique titles because the four was like 46-ish mm-hmm. due to the crossover. So now we have like, you, you can honestly say there's 50 unique games on this, languages yeah. aside. So that's fantastic. I'm glad there's Galaga 90 slash 88, Dragon Spirit I love. That was one of the times I rented I told you I rented a Torographs game once or twice. There was like one store that had them. Yeah, I rented, that's right. Because yep. I couldn't remember. I was like, I didn't own Dragon Spirit, but I know I played it. I rented it at, a, at, a, at an easy video store, which is a cha- was a chain. It might have been here, too. In the 80s and 90s. And if like you've only chain. played the NES version, the, it, it, this is more of the arcade version, and it's, it's different. It's worth playing. I don't remember the differences between the two. It's just more of the, more of the arcade. Uh, the, yeah, the Nintendo one, I think, had like an extra power-up, and it's got like the weird story added to it. 
I like the weird story. I do too. I like it. I like that intro where you play you play the prequel basically. Where, yeah, the exactly. The Which prequel. was the original. I think it's original arcade. You, it, like that's the first stage, and then it's a, kind of like a sequel story. I believe that's what the NES one did. Now I remember. It like recapped the first game in that first level, something like that. Anyone out there play Dragon Spirit? Well, kind of Dragon about Spirit that? In, in the NES one. It like retells the story real quick. Okay, I know what I'm talking about. I, I played Dragon Spirit. My brain feels <laughs> all tight now. Let's move on from the planet Arium. Or in <laughs> no, just trying to figure right, out Dragon who Spirit. here is excited for the TurboGrafx Mini. <laughs> who here actually had it as a child? Like four people. <laughs> Wait, now you want to play these games? You're like, what is this weird console that I heard about in Legend and in, in, in Mystery, and and now it's here. And then there's some really expensive games on there, like Sapphires on there. So this is going to be a great way to play Sapphire. Um, you know, this will hook up via HD. So um, you know, stuff like that is going to look beautiful. It's going to look gorgeous. It's going to look gorgeous. What? 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 I got my head for it. I heard Bonk 3. They're going to add Bonk 3. I don't think so if we haven't heard it by now, but you never know. What was the other question? The Wii did make yes, it? Yes, it did. It brought it, it brought attention to the Turbo Graphics uh, in the U.S. Maybe YouTube videos might up here and there. Who? Oh, that was disdainful. <laughs> that was disdainful. So YouTube didn't help at all? Uh, no? Yes? I don't know. I'm asking them. I, I, okay. That hurt my soul. You know what? Now that they have Namco, why is there not Pac-Land? Get Pac-Land on there. Uh, Pac-Land's fantastic. Get Bloody Wolf on there. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, get Matt. Well, it's not Namco, but get Magical Chase. Who owns Nam- who owns Magical Chase? I forget. Who's that? It's some small, not really well-known company. I have no idea. I, I think Pac-Land should be on this. There you go. And he has this cute Japanese long nose in this one, not the short stubby nose, I believe. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in video game years. He's got Didn't a we? hat. He's got a hat. He's looking dapper. Does he have the stubby nose on the sh- TurboGrafx one? No, he has a... You see the long nose. He, he has, has a sh- schnoz. He has the schnoz Japanese nose. Okay, that's fine. There's there's different nose sizes in these versions. I'm not making that up, I think. Am I imagining this? You might be. I might be imagining it? You might Okay, and th- this is not coming out until March, and hopefully Konami doesn't screw it up, because so far it's all good news. Uh, ex- well, I have to clarify. When we first covered this, I forgot there there is two USB ports in the front. You don't you don't need to buy that TurboTap adapter. Oh, okay. Play. So... So, young Pat, it's okay. You don't just waste 50 bucks to, to never have a second player come over. That's so sad. Battle Royale. I know. It was a sad childhood. Kevin didn't want to play Battle Royale with me. Did you, you like, did you plug other controllers in just I to prete- make it yes, feel like? I pre- okay. I had a second. Yes. And I pretended Good. someone wanted to come over and play t- a two-player you know, TV sports hockey with me. Okay. Yes. I, I actually imagine my head playing five-player TV sports hockey with friends. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Little oh. Pat just sitting there smashing two controllers. Oh, this is great. We can play Blades of Steel, I'm or we can play. We can play five-player TV sports hockey. But I didn't have the friends to uh, play with. That's okay. That's I'm, that seems I'm, unfair. I, five I, I, players. I, I don't think about it at all. That's, that's three humans on I, one side and two humans but, on the other. But I don't think about that every every other week. You do. I, how I never use my turbo tap ever that's that I, I saved up allowance for four months to buy anyway all right we're gonna we're gonna move on so it's good splatterhouse yay splatterhouse and we're back and that was a great conversation we had great points all around glad to see splatterhouse and other games being added there let's just hope bloody wolf gets on there flex pro meals we love them they're a meal delivery company that sends healthy pre-made meals to your doorstep their goal is to give you just salad but epic recipes and meals you may have grown up on but they make healthier versions of that are still yummy eating healthy is a lifestyle change not a two-week gimmick so it's flex pro's responsibility to go the extra mile to give us 
the most value with realistic and tasty meal options at a good price. They offer a weight loss fat trimmer plan and the lean muscle larger portion plan. That's one I'm into. So their most popular meal entrees are smoked brisket mac, yummy, the breakfast burrito, yummy. I'm going to eat that after the podcast. Grilled fish and chips, mmm, and the list goes on. If you want a staple, they you know they got steak and veggies. They also have they also have the the chicken and sweet potato meal. Oh, gets the job done, especially you know after work, after a workout. You know if you want to take it for lunch, it works any way you look at it. Right now, right now, you can get twenty percent off your first order. 20% off using code CUPODCAST when you visit flexpromeals.com. That's 20% off your first order of meals, yummy meals. We also have little, little nice little baked desserts. When you visit flexpromeals.com, use code CUPODCAST, baby. Get going. Get going with your meals, your flex meals, flex pro meals. All right, Pat, solo topic. So uh, the NES... Has been on the Switch Online service now for what are we talking? We're going on like eight months now, eight nine months, and we see every month a lot of weird backlash happening. Where you know the, the NES Online service is, is a bonus feature. Really, it's like a you know an, 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 it's like a free appetizer for the Switch Online service, which is pretty reasonable. What is it? Twenty bucks a year doesn't cost that much. So whenever now it's like almost a meme that that Nintendo announces new games every month on Twitter and social media. They do like a little two-minute trailer of their new, now two to three new NES games a month. And there's a lot of backlash when it comes to it. Uh, people are like, oh, what the hell is this? No one wants these games. And of course, these are teenagers. These are these are kids, young adults in their 20s. They didn't grow up with the NES. They don't know any better. Uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do from the Bible. That's what's happening here. Uh, not many Bible quotes, quotes in the CU podcast. But that's what's happening in this situation when you have... Uh, a lot of backlash from people like, oh, these gear games no one wants, which is strange because some some people want these games. So, for example, the the last um, the last month was Kung Fu Heroes and Vice Project Doom. Vice Project Doom is a, is a really really good game. Not, not a lot of people have played. It's a multi genre game. There's racing. There's uh, action platforming. There's uh, shooter uh, stages. It's a fun game. The other one was Kung Fu Heroes. Well, well, not a great game. I think it's three stars according to certain. NES guidebook. It's a kitschy game, and it's fun for what it is for one you know for an earlier, uh, you know, sort of 1.5 generation of NES games. But we have about 50 NES games uh, here right now, and people are clamoring for Super Nintendo, and we kind of know it's coming. But there hasn't been any solid safe from Nintendo yet. Saying like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll think about that. Right now, we're focusing on other things. That's what Nintendo usually does before, right before releasing something. They'll try to like deny it or push it aside. But now we have a report. Uh, that, well, there's further evidence coming here because uh, we have an FCC filing from Nintendo for an SNES wireless controller for the Switch. And this comes from uh, the Reset Era 4 member, Link83. This report's from BGR.com. Um, so what this report has here, it's showing the shape of the controller on the back. And the reason people know that this is going to be for the Switch is because uh, the model number can be seen, which includes uh, HAC, which I believe denotes that it's a, a Nintendo Switch there. And, it, and it's a Super Nintendo shape uh, on the back here. There's no denying this is a Super Nintendo controller, uh, the, the shape here. So this, is a, this will be your first sort of uh, first evidence that this is going to be coming. 
the the Super Nintendo games on on, on the Switch. I, I think people this will be they, they could raise the price ten dollars. I think I said this before. They can have different tiered levels of Switch Online, and people would pay you know an extra ten bucks a month to have a bunch of Super Nintendo games they like they like here. Um, so, but if it's wireless, though, obviously this wouldn't be slid into the the Joy-Con rails uh, like the NES controller. Uh, so they, they're just going totally new controller, which I'm down for. I, I just wish there was a picture of the front here because I would love to know if this is like the 8-bit do controllers, which I have one and use it, and USB or wireless is over there somewhere, where they have the, the, dual, uh, the dual sticks on the front as well. And once you combine the dual sticks... And then, you know, a couple of triggers like that one has. I'm not sure this will have a couple of triggers, probably only two. You can basically have it function like a pro, like a Switch Pro controller. All you need are the are the, the sticks, and you need a couple extra buttons on the top. And then, and then you'll have a great D-pad on top of that to boot. Um, yeah, by the way, shout out to the to the person that gave me a, a Switch Pro controller um, at a Long Island Retro Gaming Expo. Thank you so much, because uh, now I can play uh, ice hockey. In peace without the crappy Joy-Con. So here we go. So we, we don't know when this is going to come. Uh, hopefully before Christmas, this is going to be out there. My guess is that they're going to announce. They'll announce the games the same time they announce the controller for sale. And I don't think this will be an exclusive like the NES controller. Because the Super Nintendo games are a lot more popular now with, with the current generation than the NES games. Our NES aren't quite Atari games. But a lot of people look at them as primitive, people that didn't grow up with them, which is, to me is very strange because they're, they're miles ahead of Atari games, uh, NES games, in terms of uh, functionality, in terms of look and feel and how they sound. It's not even close uh, there. Uh, but I, I, so, so I'm happy about this. I'm not going to speculate on the games yet or how many. I'm guessing they'll start out with probably... They can probably even start out with only 10 or 15, and they can just add a few each month for like three years, and people would be happy or happier with this. But, but going back to the NES games, because I, we will, I really haven't discussed with, discussed this with Ian really about why I think there's such a backlash. And I think part of it is because there's a lack of education when it comes to these NES games. And to a lot of people that didn't grow up with, with these games, the only way you could have heard about uh, these NES games is through an older brother or a parent at this point or, or someone that grew up with them. But you're still limited to a lot of those very popular first-party games, the ones that are on the NES Classic, uh, or the ones that are on the virtual console, if you if you if these kids even remember that, maybe when they were five or six or seven, um, or, or or just like first party games that you know Nintendo's re released on the on the G, on the GBA, you know. So the, the issue is education. So when you when you do these uh, when Nintendo does these announcement videos, they show Kung Fu Heroes, for example. They don't like tell you anything. There's no announcers uh, telling you why this game is cool, why, why people like might like it, or what features it has. The same with Vice Project Doom, and with the with the past months, it's been the same thing. So I, I'm I'm not totally begrudging or saying, oh, these kids don't know what these games are. But if I'm a kid that didn't grow up with say a game like Mighty Bomb Jack. I may not know why it might be a fun game. And Mighty Bomb, Bomb Jack's a fun game. I think it's a three-star game, according to a certain NES guidebook. It's better than average. Uh, or, or a game like, I don't know, Versus Excitebike. Why is that an important release on the uh, uh, on the um, NES Switch Online? I almost said Virtual Console. Why is that an important game? Well, Pat could tell you it was because that was a Famicom Disk System exclusive. It never came out here. And it's a two-player Excitebike game. And in the U.S., there wasn't a two-player Excitebike game. If Nintendo said that, uh, that month when that game com- came out, you might have some people say, oh, well, that's interesting, that history, I didn't know that, and I'll check it out, and I won't bitch about it online. Potentially. I mean, there's no guarantee. People are going to bitch online about things regardless, whether it's uh, whether it's games like this 
or a cartoon character not being fuckable enough to their liking, you know, things like that, uh, random things. So that's what I'm talking about here. It's all about education. Solomon's key to me was like, wow, that's a big deal to another person. They may say like, what's going on? So when you look at the list of games on the Nintendo Switch, there's about, there's about 50 here that I'm looking at. And people are like, well, we're getting to the bottom of the barrel. But are we really? To me, this isn't barrel level yet. Vice Project Doom is not barrel level. You, you still don't have games like Baseball Stars on here, for example. I'm looking at my app to tell you what's not on here. Um, do you have Blast Master? Yes. You, you still don't have stuff like, uh, you have Castlevania 3 on here? Do you even have Castlevania 3 on here? No. You don't even have Castlevania 3 on here, uh, for example. You don't have some of the later uh, Dragon Warriors. And I guess, yes, some of these are, are rights issues, but you see my point. You don't have DuckTales on here. Uh, you know, so while it's easier to get the first party games on here, some of these third parties you, you can get them here. You don't have games like Guardian Legend on here, do you? Is there Guardian Legend on here? I wish it was in alphabetical order. I can see here. You don't have stuff like like Little Samson. You don't have stuff like uh, some of the some of the Mega Man games aren't on here. Uh, you don't have stuff like Metal Storm on here. Not Mighty Final Fight. I mean, no one's really uh, heard of that game outside of people that know the NES. But if, if people announced that and Nintendo said, "Check out this cool game that no one really played." Because it was re- released in limited quantities, I think some people w- would have checked, in that, uh, checked that out. You don't have the later Ninja Gaidens on here. You don't have games like Power Blade. You don't have Panic Restaurant. You know, you don't have RC Program Two. Um, do you even have RC Program One? Well, those are rare games. It's probably why, but RC Program Two is actually not a, a rare game. The first one is. Um, you don't have games like like uh, Silkworm. You don't have games like uh, you know Track and Field. You know, fun games that. Uh, people might get excited about, even though they're not like, you know, the all-time classics. Um, let's see. Let's see. Is Gradius on here? I think Gradius is actually on there. Gradius is on there. But you see my point. You don't have Bad News Baseball. You don't have Batman on here. You don't have Blades of Steel. You know, you don't have... Do you have Bubble Bobble on here? That was on the NES Classic, wasn't it? But you don't have it on here? No, there's no Bubble Bobble on here. And the list goes on as I go into like the four-star games, not even the four-and-a-half, five-stars. You know, um, Felix the Cat. That's not going to be on because of the weird licensing uh, there. There's no strategy games on there even. Do you have a game even like Gunsmoke on there? Is Gunsmoke on here? No. So so that's what I mean. Uh, it's all about education. And there's a lot more others I'm leaving out here. Uh, you know, Kung Fu Heroes. Oh, Kung Fu Heroes got four stars. Who, who reviewed Kung Fu Heroes? Here? Was that was that Ian? I think I think it's only a three-star game now. We, uh, we rewrote some of them for the third edition here. Um, hell. Is there even Monopoly on here? Play a nice board game with your friends on. I play Monopoly multiplayer on Switch Online. Sure, why not? Uh, is Pro Wrestling on here? I believe Pro Wrestling was supposed to be on here. Was No. Oh, no, Pro Wrestling's on there, yeah. So, anyway, that's my point, is that there's probably, even without going to the bottom of the barrel, which is why I've seen people say that we're at the bottom of the barrel now, there's probably a good 50 to 100 games that you can get on here that people would enjoy, uh, as long as you explain to them that these are quality games. You may not have heard of them, but it's new to you because of that, just like reruns. So going back to the Super Nintendo, um, my, my prediction, if I want to predict it, is that you're going to get probably between 10 to 15 games announced from the start, and then you'll get three to five games a month because there's a, there's a lot of games, uh, first-party games that they can put out there, and they probably have the rights to a lot of the uh, you know uh, third-party games. But you know, hopefully uh, companies like Capcom can play ball, to get, like the Mega Man X games on there again, um, and then get, uh, get some Konami games on there. And, you know, and then we'll, we'll see what goes from there. And then and ter- as a tr- for N64, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold my breath for, you know, Nintendo putting on an N64 controller. But who knows? You probably get Game Boy before you get uh, N64 on the Switch. I would I would think that would that would make more sense uh, in my eyes there.
All right. Um, we have a, we have a, let's see. We have something that, uh, oh, I'm going to switch. I'm going to, I'm going to put that topic for, for last there. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on Tales from the Game Store here. Oh, that's a spoiler. If you're listening to the audio podcast, there's a Tales from the Game Store coming up. Um, an article was put out uh, by a friend of the show, Chris Kohler, from Kotaku. Great video game journalist. I've had him on the Knox Common podcast. Uh, the article is called Deep-Pocketed Collectors Are Fueling a Retro Game Gold Rush. And what this article speaks about, and I'm going to read probably most of it here because I have a lot to say about this article. This has to talk about uh, people that I brought up more and more, people the past six, eight, nine months, that because of uh, WADA getting degraded games and because of Heritage, Heritage Auctions and uh, uh, Comic Link, Certified Link uh, doing auctions, they're now, these are people from the uh, comics world, uh, coin collecting world. Um, they are getting into. They are getting into buying graded games. They see it as the next big thing because they've uh, depleted what's available in their own markets, comic books and uh, coins. And so they're, they're, they're getting into this now. And I've, I've met them. I've met a few of them. I, I've, people have offered me, uh, one person has offered me money for, for games I have. Uh, overall, I think these are nice people. I don't think they are evil people. I think they might be misguided in, in in their analysis of what's happening. And so that's the only thing I'm going to say here, uh, not to be too critical uh, of my pal Chris who wrote the article, that this article, before I get into it, doesn't present an alternative perspective uh, on, on some of the comments, some of the assertions made by people in this article and their uh, purview, oh, excuse me, their, their survey of what's happening in the landscape and why and why the market is heading towards certain directions in their minds versus what's really happening uh, here. And so I'm going to provide the alternative perspective. I wish Chris called me up because uh, I met, I've met some of these people uh, before and recently. I got their cards right here, a couple of people. Uh, you know, I almost called one to say, like, did you really mean that in the article? But I'll get into that. So Retro Game Gold Rush, huh? Uh, from Chris Kohler, and I'll link to the article here. I love Chris. Don't hate me, Chris. Um, Daniel Smith. Daniel Smith has spent half a million dollars on rare video games. Most of it in the last nine months. Like I said, six to nine months people are getting into this. And she's just getting started. I really just want the best of the best, said Smith, 35. Now, I've met Danielle. We have like a a, a tense, uh, fun rivalry going on. I met her at too many games. She was hanging out at the uh, WADA booth there. Uh, And then she was also at Comic-Con. Less than a month ago, and I spoke to her there as well. So I have things to say about Danielle. Hopefully she doesn't uh, try to choke me next time I see her. I'll try to be as nice as I possibly can here, even though I, I vehemently disagree on some points that will be raised here. That said, let's move on. I really, I really just want the best of the best, said Smith, 35. That half a million bucks has only bought her around 200 games. Last week, she spent $2,650 on a sealed copy of Donkey Kong Country for the Super Nintendo. Smith, a comic dealer from Florida, is just one of many deep-pocketed collectors who have only recently started splashing in, splashing out in earnest on games. Comic book people and art people are coming in, and we want rare games that are hard to find, she said. All right, I'll stop right there. Um, and this is where the disagreements start when I, when I, when I have conversations with these people. She just bought Donkey Kong Country. That's one of 
one of the most common Super Nintendo games that was ever created. That was a million seller. There were literally millions of Donkey Kong countries produced. And there are a ton left that still exist today. So already we see a conflation between a rare video game and a game, a common game, very common game, that is sealed, that's in a rare state. Already you see the conflation begin, and that's where the philosophical disagreements start Oh, oh, start to arise. That's where they exist. And that's why when I talk about sealed game collectors, they're not video game collectors, because if they were, they'd be satisfied with even a complete in-box copy of Donkey Kong Country, which is easy to find. It'll cost you, what, $30, $40? Uh, but no, it's already a conflation that people want rare games that are hard to find, but that's not what they're collecting. They're collecting sealed games of very common games or any other variety of availability. Moving on. Um... This is Chris talking now. Even long-time video game collectors like myself have been stunned at the news as of late. Games that just a few years ago might have only sold for a few thousand dollars are, are quickly exploding into five- and six-figure valuations. First, there was a sealed copy, the sealed copy of Super Mario Bros. that sold on eBay for $30,000. This year, an earlier print of the game sold for $100,150. That was the sticker-sealed ones that we talked about that the one of the... Uh, one of the uh, ex-owners, CEOs of Heri- Heritage Auctions bought, so it was kind of weird. It was bought by three people. Okay, going back. And it's not just the first Super Mario that's p- powered up in price. By now, you've probably heard the story of the sealed copy of the NES Classic Kid Icarus that just sold for 9000 We talked about that. Sales of sealed games are shattering records left and right. If you want to know why, just follow the money. Numerous sources speaking to Kotaku for the story have all said the same thing. The past two years have seen an influx of new money coming into the classic game collecting scene, Chris, why, why wasn't I a source? Uh, primarily high-end collecting experts from other areas of interest like comic books, magic cards, and coins. They see video games as the next big thing. Like a mint condition action comics uh, issue one might be the ultimate trophy of nostalgia for the superhero age of the mid-20th century, so too might a sealed Mario be the perfect bottling of the pop culture moments of the 1980s. And these new collectors are ready to spend, spend to get their hands on the best, rarest, mintiest copies because... They've seen what happened in their collecting fields when price is starting to rise. Here's the difference again. The rarest comics, Action Comics number one, Detective Comics 27, which aren't even the rarest comics, by the way. There's rarer comics than that. That's the only way you can exist a comic book in that fashion is by owning the comic book. When it comes to a Donkey Kong Country, and I'll go back to that because that's the, the, the example here. You can get a Donkey Kong Country cart. You can get a complete in box Donkey Kong Country, even a minty complete in box Donkey Kong Country. But just because it's not sealed to these people, it's not worth anything to them. But it's still the same item. That doesn't exist when it comes to uh, magic cards, when it comes to coins. There's no difference between a... There's no sealed coin versus a regular coin. They're all coins. Yes, of different condition, but they're all coins. Uh, The same with comic books. They're all comic books just with different conditions uh, here. Uh... I truly believe, this quote, I truly believe that we are on the brink of something really epic and incredible happening, says Smith, who says she's recently been selling off rare comics to fund more video game buys. Well, the, well, the comics market, this is what happened with the comics market. You have people get in from the art world and others and drive the prices up because they had money to, to spend. And from what I've heard from comic dealers, this started happening a lot, a lot more with the housing crisis. Because usually you could invest in, 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 in um, real estate, and that was always the surefire bet. Not with the housing crisis and not. A lot of people are like, what the hell do I do? So they started buying art. They started buying comic books. Uh, containers of wealth, we'll just say. 
not really necessarily just to even enjoy uh, the pieces that they, they bought, but they were containers of wealth, hedges against the stock market, against real estate, and against you know uh, U.S. cash values, I guess, and, and their 401k, things of that nature. So what you have to keep in mind when this article that Chris has written, and it's a good article overall, I just disagree with uh, keeping out alternate perspectives, is that uh, Danielle has a vested interest in saying that they, they are on the brink of something really epic and incredible happening because these are the people that are putting the money to try to create that epic moment to happen, if that makes sense. This is an extremely biased quote, and that's there's more in the article, obviously. There's no uh, perspectives of people that have been collecting for 20 years and dealers that have been selling for 20 years responding to some of the insane things they've been happening to, to say something to the effect of, well, I think these people might be going overboard or they're overestimating the interest of some of these games or they're overestimating, overestimating the rarity of some of these games uh, versus some of these comics, these rare comics that they own, uh, for example. Uh, moving on. Um, thus far, the world of classic video game collecting has been mostly driven by avid gamers seeking, seeking complete sets of games for a certain platform. That's true when it comes to NES. And that's the reason NES games, Pat here speaking, not Chris Kohler. That's, that's true when it comes to NES games. So there's no reason at all that a lot of garbage half-star, one-star uh, Color Dreams games should be worth $100, like Moon Ranger or Mermaids of Atlantis. The only reason those games are worth $80, $100, $200 or more is because of, of idiots like me that need to buy it in order to complete a collection. The only reason Steam Events is worth that much money is because of, of uh, completionists. Collector completionists. Not collectionists. We'll get into that later. <laughs> That's a semi-spoiler for a later topic. That's the only reason why. It hasn't happened to the same um, to the same level of, of, of hype, though, when it comes to Super Nintendo and some of the other systems. And I know that because I just did a certain Super Nintendo guidebook. And when going through and discovering that these there was a lot of you know rare and uh, very uncommon games I didn't know about, when I started looking up the price on eBay for some of those rare games, I was shocked that many of them were were below twenty dollars or twenty five dollars. Some are below ten dollars, and I won't say which ones. I don't want to artificially drive the market, but I picked up a couple that seemed like cool games and they were hard to find. But I was like, wow, I picked one up for like twenty five bucks. I picked one up for fifteen dollars. If those were NES games, those would have been one hundred and fifty, two hundred, two hundred and fifty dollars. I picked up Super Nintendo games for cheap that were like on the level of rarity of like Power Blade Two, and that's like a three hundred dollar game. I think at this point probably, but on the Super Nintendo, they're like twenty five bucks. $30, maybe $40. So it's it's happened with other systems, but it, the completionist mindset never, to me, got past the NES collectors. And Ian agrees with me. It's on Ian right now. It didn't happen with Super Nintendo to that, uh, to that uh, same level. It definitely didn't happen with PS1 and PS2. I think it stopped with the NES. Yeah, there are probably some Super Nintendo, uh, uh, you know, people that are getting the full set. Not the same level happened with NES. Uh, moving on. Oh, okay. That's what caused Steam Events, an unremarkable and largely forgotten exercise game from the 1980s, to become for a time the most desired rare Nintendo entertainment game system game. You couldn't complete your set without it, so up went the price. Even though by itself it held almost no nostalgic appeal. And Chris is right. Just echo what I said. You show Steam Events to someone on the street; they're not going to know what the hell you're talking about. But you show anyone Mario, and they immediately they can sing you the jingle from the first level. Says Denise Khan, the president. Or is it Dennis? Is it Den- I think it's Dennis Khan, the president of Wild Games. I met the guy, very nice guy. Uh, a company that authenticates authenticates and assesses collectible video games. I'm sorry, I said Denise. That's a female name. Uh, Dennis with a Z. 
Um, that's what Danielle Smith and others like her want. They want something that matches their common collections of small batch of games representing key moments in gaming in the best condition possible. Again, in the best condition possible, that's key here. Which is, This is what separates them from being regular video game collectors who don't need it in the best condition possible. A sticker-sealed early copy of Super Mario, a sealed Metroid, a first print Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Although she's been collecting comics for 15 years, 15 years. This is where I would ask a question if I was Chris or write about it. How did you... Okay, I'm going to finish this, this paragraph, then I'm going to get back to this thought. Uh, Smith's, Smith's personal collection only numbers around 90 books that, even encased in their protective plastic slabs, fit into three small boxes. But those boxes contain an act, Action Comics issue one. The first appearance of Superman that Smith estimates to be worth around $750,000. I don't know when she's bought that, but in the past 15 years, that's always been an expensive comic. That's always been the most expensive comic book. That Detective Comics 27. She's also got a Detective Comics 27. The first appearance of Batman. So this is when I start talking about, if I was writing this article, who are the types of people getting into this? And obviously these are the the, the upper echelon. These are the 1% out there that uh, can afford to buy uh, graded Golden Age comics. Apparently starting in their early 20s, they had the money to to do this. Um, so, and that's what I'm going to get back to. And I'm not trying to take a crap on rich people. I'm not. Um, but this is a rich people's hobby slash sport. It's not for you or me. I, I can't get into this. I can't, I can't drop $6,000 on a, on a sealed Donkey Kong, a, a graded Donkey Kong, uh, country. Oh, excuse me. $2,600. I can't do that with regularity. I might be to do it, maybe, maybe do it once or twice before I worry about my mortgage. You know, I, I can't do that. And I definitely can't buy... I can't even drop the money I want to drop on an Amazing Fantasy of 15 grade because the price keeps going up 20% each year uh, because of the volume of trading between these these sort of people. And so that was the first thing I, I'd focus on writing this article. Like, these are people that uh, either came from money or got in so early on the coin market and and, and comic book market and magic market to, and made their money off of the volume of trading there and the speculation that now these people have moved into this field and are trying to do the same thing, to make money and capitalize off of the fervor, the the FOMO, the fear of missing out, which is driving now these people to now buy all these games, uh, to, to show up at too many games that I saw and buy every black box game that was a sticker-sealed game. Not, I mean, it was sealed, but is a sticker-sealed uh, variant, first uh, version, even games like golf and games like baseball, and buying them all to hoard and speculate that the game that's worth only $25, $30 now, 10 years from now, they think it will be worth thousands of dollars. They've done that already with Magic Cards. They bought all the ones they could there early on. They bought all the comic books they could in order to have the market uh, encase what they think that the value of what these games should be. They're now uh, attempting and doing it with sealed games right now. They're buying them all up. They're buying all the black box games that are sticker sealed that aren't even sealed. They are hoarding them because they think this is happening, and but they are creating it out of their own, their own FOMO, their own fear of missing out. They are competing against each other in this small group of people very small group of people. This is less than, uh, this is probably less than half a percent of all video game collectors out there are into the sealed games. It's not 10%, which is what Danielle tried to tell me in person. I thought that was funny. It's not even 1%, I think, of video game collectors are into sealed. If you want to make an argument for 1%, I'll probably be with you maybe, but it's definitely not 10%. 
Okay. Um. All right. So, okay, moving on. Okay, next next one here. Uh, these books are extremely rare and valuable in any condition, but a Super Mario Brothers uh, Metroid Punch-Out are some of the most common NES games out there. In this case, the condition drives the value. A loose copy of Metroid with no box is a $5 game. Eh, 10 to 15 Chris, but whatever. Uh, but a mint-sealed first copy... Uh, first print copy is so difficult to find that its price would be more like five figures. Someone said, quote, someone said, you know, there's a lot of copies of that game, so you don't want to buy more than one copy. Smith said a collector told her at one point about Punch-Out. And they're like, there's 50 sealed copies. And my mind was, was kind of like, what the hell? Like, that's action one rarity. So the first thing I would say about that is that I don't know I'm sure how, how a collector would be so sure about the number of sealed games out there uh, for one particular one. Uh, just because, and this goes back to Tim Atwood, and other collectors, but probably Tim Out was the big one, but he's an example that the, the exception to the rule, but there are other, other exceptions that there are collectors out there. We don't know about that have games that we don't know about because they, they remain private. And that goes with rare games and probably some sealed ones as well, because to me, um, the three or four older guys that I know that are in collecting, when I say older guys in like their sixties, and I've seen locally here. Um, and some had very rare stuff. Like one guy had a stadium events that he got in the nineties, for example. Another guy had every, you know, every rare uh, Sega City uh, and uh, Sega Saturn game that I bought a bunch for, uh, from him, uh, like three, four years ago. He was getting out of the hobby. But there are guys out there that they were collecting in the early nineties that were buying up, um, you know, uh, content from either toy stores going out of business. But from a lot of mom and pop rental stores that went out of business in the nineties, these guys went in and got all their stuff. I'm not saying they're all rare, uh, all rare games, but there's some rare ones in there. I'm not saying they're all sealed games, but these are guys that were doing this sort of thing, sticking these games out in the 90s. And I'm not sure we know about all of them yet. I'm not saying there's, there's a, a thousand of these guys, but there's probably at least a few dozen of them uh, out there, in my estimation, that we just don't know about uh, here. Okay. Um, so, okay. So 50 copies of, of Sealed of Punch-Out. Okay. Uh, Joshua Enton, a 43, a lawyer from Fort, Fort Lauderdale, is another longtime Golden Age comic collector who's jumped into the deep end of the pool with video game collecting over the last two years. He got into the collecting bug from his dad, blah, 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 blah. Uh, da, da, da. The last two years, he spent um, he spent about 75000 buying up about 200 NES games, a sealed Zelda, a sealed Mario, etc., he first saw the appeal of collecting games when he saw a game that had been authenticated and created by Dennis Khan's company, Wada Games. It's interesting that Wada Games, they marketed themselves better, closer to what CGC was, uh, than what VGA. VGA dropped the ball. The Video Game uh, Authority, those guys dropped the ball. They could have been this, but they weren't. Um, they, they haven't been this, and now people aren't even talking about VGA anymore. Uh, plus, well, we talked about how Wada was doing a better job because they had guys that from the video game collecting scene that knew about seal games to authenticate, they were really more of an authority than VGA, and that's why we liked Walt Wada. But I guess they did a better job marketing and having the comics and, and cars guys and coin guys f- find out about them. Um, it's a panel of experts, Wada, that assesses collectible games, assigns them a numer- numerical condition rating, and seals them in an attractive plastic display case. I did see one of their games in a prototype case and was blown away by it. Anton said it was sealed, it was nostalgic. I thought it presented incredibly well. It presented incredibly well, means it displays well. Uh, and that's when he wanted to get the games himself. Okay. Uh, the high-profile high emergence of Wada Games onto the scene last year seems to have been the inflection point that caused many uh, collect, comic collectors to get interested in games. Talked about that before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to truncate this now. Um, Wada was attracting new collectors in a way VGA has not. So we talked about that. Uh, and Wada aligned with Heritage Auctions. 
And once I knew that was going to happen, it was going to be game over. You're going to have more and more people get into this. And that's what happened. So you have Heritage now auctioning. They've auctioned coins and comics for, forever. And now in cards, I believe. And now they're doing the video game stuff that we talked about. All right. And, and they have a grading scale that's similar to the comics and coins. So people can get, get along with it. Um, and that was by design, according to uh, Dennis Khan from WADA. All right. They're talking about how there's now Universal Parks and... You know, comic books are, are you know, um, not just the comic books, or the Marvel Universe, they have, they have movies and stuff, and so now that's happening with Universal Parks, with Nintendo, blah, 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 Pikachu movie, Sonic movie, um, more quotes about how important Metroid's going to be, or if, if, if a movie comes out, or a Zelda movie, the price is going to go up, speculation, 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 speculation. Um, Khan sees, Dennis Khan sees the 8-bit NES era of the mid-80s as the parallel to the golden age of comics. The days of Superman and Batman characters have survived for nearly a century. There were comic books before Superman, and those early Platinum Age books are much rarer than even Action Comics number one, but practically nobody's interested in them. That's probably what I see as well. That's true. Um, 100 years from now, people will see Atari games as weird oddities, but they, they won't care about them because the properties won't matter anymore um, in terms of those early Atari games. Uh, versus the NES games uh, era with you know Zelda and Metroid and Link and Mario and Donkey Kong like those guys are going to live on a hundred years. Centipede will not, in people's eyes, uh, by and large. Um. So uh, Dennis said there are some that I know spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of games in the, on games in the past year, and he gets offers from other collectors looking to buy his games from him uh, every day. Oh, that's not Dennis. That was the other collector I talked about, the 43-year-old uh, lawyer. Sorry, that was Josh. Okay. Um, and now they're discovering all the variants, like the different uh, versions of Super Mario Brothers, uh, etc. The sticker sealed. Uh, there's a different version from Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Uh, you know, things like that. Um, different. They're trying to get the very first print run of these games. Um, Chris says in his article, most long-time game collectors aren't so obsessive about these details. Uh, most there are some that have always been into the hang tab versus non hang tab. You know the rev a, which is you know basically the, the second print run of a game versus um, you know the three screw versus the five screw. But with with, with some games the, the five screws came first. With some games, uh, you know it it, it, it sw- switches on some games depending on when they started making them. Uh, for example, uh, some excuse me, some are rarer than others depending. So and some are three screws more rare for some are five screws more rare. All right. Um, there always were a few veteran collectors who had long obsessed over print runs and variations. Damn it, Chris, you're, you're, you're talking about this stuff right after I am. It seems like I'm copying you, or you're copying me. Uh, but they mostly shared their knowledge with each other, uh, buried in pages of, of scattershot forum posts and on message boards. Uh, okay, this is, this is a paragraph that might be troublesome. There wasn't a lot of education available for video games, Danielle Smith said. She attended a recent classic gaming convention, Too Many Games, in Philadelphia earlier this year, and it was like she was speaking a different language. I was surprised at how little knowledge some dealers that have been doing this for, I don't want to say this in a negative way, so please don't think I am, but they had no idea that, like, like a left bro, Super Mario Bros. 3 was a first print. So what she's referring to is the first Super Mario Bros. 3 uh, carts um, and boxes. The, the, the Brothers was originally on the left, and they, they thought it was aesthetically pleasing, so in the second print runs, they put it, and four, they put it on the right side there. I was a little mind blown by that because I'm like, this is your job, she said. I think that's also why they've been so undervalued for so long. This is the one thing I would have loved to have gotten clarity from, from Chris. How is she so sure 
that the dealers, did she straight up ask them, did you know this was a variant to these dealers she spoke to? Because I spoke to a dealer that she dealt with at Too Many Games. I spoke to that dealer this past weekend at Long Island Gaming Expo. And from his perspective, he feels like he was misrepresented in this article as one of these dealers who don't know what the hell they're talking about. Because to him, yeah, he knows about the variant, but it wasn't like the price difference was that big a difference between the regular complete in box that he had to like mark it up. Because most people may not even care about that that difference. If they're looking for a Super Mario Bros. 3, especially to play like a cart, they won't give a shit. Just give me a Super Mario Bros. 3. Give me that $15, $20 game, that $10, $12 game. They don't care about it. And this goes back to what I think, like a lot of people that complete sets, a lot of times they don't go for the first print of it. They just want to get one. Like, I think my my cart is definitely a, a first print run Super Mario Brothers. The box, I don't, I don't, I don't even give a shit to check on the box. I'll be perfectly honest. I don't care. It's over there. I haven't checked it yet. I will probably after the podcast. A lot of us just don't care. That doesn't mean we don't know. We just don't care about it. But this is a degree of arrogance that, that I think has to be accounted for. Um, because someone like like Danielle here um, didn't have the knowledge about this until someone told her. This is someone that didn't start collecting video games, if you want to call her a video game collector, until nine months ago. Someone had to either write an article or inform her that this was a variant that she should be on the lookout for, or the Mike Tyson punch-out thing, which, you know, that's something, like, wow, that's kind of news to me, even. I'm like, oh, I didn't know there was a difference in the box, because I never looked out for it or didn't care. I did know about the Super Mario Brothers 3, but I know ab- about things that maybe Danielle doesn't know about. I know for sure, because I told her about a Gyromite box variant at, at, at uh, Comic-Con that she didn't know about. That was a lot rarer than w- what the Super Mario Brothers 3 is. The non-hang t- tab Gyromite box is extremely rare. And hard to find. Because they, they, they transferred over from the five screw gyromites to the three screw gyromites. Okay? And then at the same time, they, they got rid of the hang tan box. And I told, I told, uh, I told uh, Danielle this in person. I comment on and not, and not to brag or to say that I knew more than her, but to let her know that there were so many weird little things when it came to not just variants, but different things to watch out for in different video game uh, consoles. When you're collecting NES versus Super Nintendo versus Master System versus Sega Saturn versus TurboGrafx versus N64, there are so many nuances and things that you have to know and be trained on system to system. That's why it's so difficult to become a video game seller or to open a store because it's not like comic book collecting at all. When it's, yeah, I got to know about key issues. I got to know about this this uh, uh, Kong from the 60s is is worth a lot. This one from the 30s or 40s. It's a hell of a lot easier to wrap your mind up around key issues than it is like, what's the difference between the fourth print run of Super Mario Brothers versus the second versus the first? Was was there a cart color change to a certain N64 game? Like the Turok, uh, you know, uh, was it the Turok Rage Wars? They, that, that gray one that they shipped out to a few people and now, you know, they, they, they had made for the bug that was done. You know, differences in hang tabs uh, on, on games. Uh, you know, did they? Did, why is Tecmo Super Bowl 2 hard to find, but Tecmo Super Bowl 3 is, is more common? You know, there's, but does no one care about that? You know, there's a lot of things to watch out for when it comes to video game collecting. That this is, to me, arrogant because this is someone that's getting into the, the hobby, if you want to call it, and thinking they know more than these people selling uh, 
these video games for sometimes 10, 15, 20 years. And by and large, some of these people are uh, collectors. Most of them are. Some of them aren't. But to me, I'm sticking up for video game sellers out here because it's a hard thing. And just because you may know a couple little details doesn't mean you know everything. And it doesn't mean it's imp- what you think is important means that it's important to these video game sellers because they're not making money off of the Super Mario Brothers 3 variant. That's not the way they're making a living. They're, make- they're not making money off of some of these box variants because the people that they um, sell to aren't you. They are buying just carts by large. So they don't give a shit because they're actually playing the games. A lot of the people they sell to. Even some of the collectors that are buying the carts or complete in box. They are playing the games. So they don't give a shit about what is the first box for Super Mario Brothers. They don't care about the first Mario 3 box. Or the first, you know, you know what I mean? They don't care because they are video game collectors. They are playing the games. So I think this this was a statement that was very out of line. It just shows a lack of knowledge of what video game collecting is. And I wish there was a follow-up uh, about that quote. Because if a video game vendor uh, has a Super Mario Bros. 3 cart, and it, it is the first print of it and puts the, puts the uh, brothers to the left, and then tries to sell it for three or four times the value, tries to sell it for 60 bucks. Most of the people that see that cart are, are, are going to be like, well, I'm not paying 60, 75 bucks for the first print Super Mario Bros. cart. I'm fine with the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth print runs because I just want to play what to me is one of the best platforms ever created. I don't give a shit that this came out six months before this other version. I don't care. I just want to play the game. And again, this goes back to my first point, conflating uh, you know, video game collecting and collecting what they think is rare versus just wanting the sealed version of something or the first print of something. It's two entirely different things. Smith, under the other name, under name Nerdy Girl Comics, is one of the few remaining comic vendors that still sets up shop at San Diego Comic Con. Well, there's more than a few. There's there's about uh, if you I'm, I'm trying to take the trade uh, the trade paperbacks out of there. There's about twenty to twenty five uh, video game. Uh, uh, vend- uh, excuse me, <laughs> video game uh, comic vendors at at comic-con but yeah it is a minority though probably 20 there's probably 20 to 25 uh, i'm selling older comics okay blah 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 blah, blah. she's collecting them, not really for sale it was astounding to me how many people came to my booth and were more excited about video games and comic books <laughs> what if she brought my name up because i was at her booth talking to her for a half hour mostly in good fun and jest and trying to educate um and she and she was uh she was annoyed by the way that i found that um she was annoyed that I found. I uh, hope Daniel doesn't hate me. She was annoyed that I found the um, sticker seal Super Mario Brothers uh, first or second print, whatever. But it was a sticker seal beat up. But I found it at a vendor, you know, literally 150 feet away from her at the event. I brought it up there, and she tried to like play it cool, like, "Oh, oh, it's nothing. It's beat up." And even the guy next to her, the comic guy, had to say, "Danielle, he paid the guy paid like 30 bucks for that. I mean, it's it's a find. You would have bought it in a second. Well, he didn't say that, but he was thinking that. I just thought it was funny." Um, she sold the punch out there. That's what's going to happen more and more. She said they come into their mid thirties or maybe early forties. They have established careers and this becomes a grail for them. Again, this shows a lack of knowledge of what people are, 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 are willing to settle for because the video game collecting happened already. Usually when you get to your early mid twenties, that's when the video game collecting happened. When you had the console 15, 20 years ago, that's what happened to me. Late nineties. I had the console 12, 13 years ago. I got into it. But people are quite okay. Most people don't have uh, a $2,600 to drop on a sealed Donkey Country. 
But everyone has 50 bucks to drop on a Donkey Kong Country uh, cart in the box or 20 bucks on a Donkey Kong cart itself. And 99.9%, 99% of people will be satisfied with that. And that's what's allowed video game collecting to thrive. That people weren't only interested in just the boxed games or just the sealed games. They were okay having a cart because that's, as a kid, that's what they had. They had the cartridge. They threw out the boxes. That's the reason... Danielle doesn't realize the reason why she thinks these games are so rare, the sealed ones, is because people opened up the games and played them. So they're whatever they're they're wanting to actually use the product is the reason why she can speculate and hoard these games and others uh, like her is because the games were used properly as the commodity and product that they were created to be. Uh. Khan agrees. For every speculator that comes in for comics, I think there's at least two guys in comics that are getting coming in simply because they play these games too. They love it. They're collectors at heart, and they see something new and exciting they want to get involved with. I don't. I don't agree with that. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of these. Uh, I've, I've seen some of these sealed uh, guys. I don't agree that that these guys are coming in uh, because they they love these video games. Because again, they'd be satisfied with just buying the the cartridge if that was the case. I I don't agree with that wholesale. Yeah, there's probably some. But I don't see this two for one ratio happening. Uh, at this point. Uh, Chris Chris writes, that doesn't mean the field is free of blatant speculation. One thing that a lot of the people are coming in from comics are doing that I don't do, said Joshua Anton, is buying every copy of like Seal Super Mario Brothers, 11th or 12th print, whatever it is that they, that they can get their hands on. So, and that's what's happening. I know that for a fact, that they are now trying to buy every single copy they can. I had one person self-described say, yes, he was a hoarder of these games. Self-described, I'm hoarding these games. And that happens with with rare comics as well. I'm sure with rare magic cards, I'm sure people have like, you know, 20 uh, black orchids or what what have you. I'm sure it's happened with coins. And that's what not only increases the price, because volume trading increases prices naturally. The more something's bought, the more people think it's worth money. It doesn't matter if it's 20 people buying it or just one buying them all up. We saw that with the Rampart Game Boy cartridge three or four years ago on this very podcast. Someone set out to prove a point that they could raise a, uh, the price of a, of a Game Boy game no one cared about. It went from a $6 game to like $25, $30, bucks, whatever it was, in the matter of weeks. Because they bought it all. Volume trading. Buying it as much as, as, as fast as they can. Other sellers see the trend. They increase the price or match the, the higher price. And then it's, it's a self-perpetuating loop when it comes to pricing. Um, as the prices rise on first... Uh, print games. Some even some veteran collectors might find that un- unbeknownst to them, they have a ten thousand dollar game sitting on their shelf, stuck in among their finds from the dollar bin. Some of them might decide it's time to cash out. If this is all temporary bubble, they're right to get paid while they're getting is good. But what if it's not? Well, that's the thing now because I know what I have that these people would want. Um, my deluxe Super Nintendo uh, Entertainment System set, you know, the test market one. Um, I have pristine copies of Gyromite and pristine copies of Duck Hunt in there. The Duck Hunt's been opened. I'm not sure the Gyromite's been opened in there. Sticker-sealed games. And I'm not saying this to advertise this, but at some point, if someone want to offer me a ton of money for these, I'd be, I'd be foolish not to turn it down, especially if, to me, having a complete box copy uh, that's sticker-sealed, what, what have you, worth 50 bucks only, um, and I have an extra, I at least have an extra Gyromite sticker seal in okay condition, probably like six or seven, but that one's like a 10. Um, I can replace it and I'd be fine mentally. Same with Duck Hunt. Um, the vendor next to me, uh, the sealed uh, uh, Wada 
vendor. Again, nice guy. He told me it's possible that someone would offer me or at auction the, the gyromite that might have been opened once, but the sticker seals intact could go for 40, 50 grand. And he said it with a straight face if it was graded. And it came in at like, you know, a high grade, like I guess like a 9 or a 9.5 or a 10 or whatever, or 9.8. And I'm like, okay, may not do it tomorrow, but that's something to think about. If I need the money, why not? I paid 20 bucks for that. Uh, that that set New Jersey it had everything it had everything but the console actually, and it had the games, the controllers, Rob, and everything. Uh, I had a parrot with an under one hundred thousand dollar, one hundred thousand serial number uh, unit uh, console unit. It's like okay, sure. Uh, why not? By the way, that that vendor on Sunday told me I asked him how he did, and he I think he sold like one or two sealed games the whole weekend at Long Island Richard Gaming Expo, and that's not a small expo. There was at least two to three thousand people there over the weekend to let you again know how many video game collectors are actually into the sealed stuff that at least come out to these events because they really don't do it by and large i'll be interested to see what happens at portland uh later this year uh for sure uh let's see the same thing happens in every uh, mature collectible industry concept comics coins baseball cards people for decades are like the prices are crazy i'm selling out i can't handle this anymore and for four 20 years and they're like what the hell was i thinking so the reason i, I disagree with that statement is because the only way for 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 commodities products to rise in value to an insane degree is for games before that to be sold so for example um for example let's just say i have an nwc gold card which i do let's just say 20 years from now that's going to be a, 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 a i'm not saying it's going to be uh but let's just say it happened to be 10 years from now a five million dollar game and i sold it next year for for a quarter million dollars hypothetically the only reason that it's a $5 million game uh, 10, 20 years from now, five years from now, is because someone other, someone like me had to sell it at a lower price for the price to climb. It's hard for something to jump from a small price, like let's say 100 grand in WC, uh, which I've turned down uh, gold. It's hard for that to jump from $100,000 to $5 million with nothing in between to justify the, the uh, transaction price, if that makes sense. So I, can, I don't see why people would be regretful of that because there's no, first of all, there's no guarantee. It's very few cases that's going to happen. And they need the money now. So, so the money now, the, the small amount of money now is worth more than potential money you may or may not get 5, 10, 20 years from now. That's just the way things work out. Not everyone, not everyone can af- afford to sit on stuff they know can sell for a lot of money for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, because they need the money now. They need, they need a, they've got kids. They've got to pay off their mortgage. Uh, they've got, they got college loans. Um, they want to go on vacation. You know, they got a wedding coming up. They got it for themselves or for their daughter. You know, these are situations that these 1% people, collectors doing this, they don't have to worry about that. Other collectors like you out there, you would have to think about, okay, what if I have something that's worth 50 grand now, but it's worth a million dollars 20 years from now? You may not have that option to sit on it and wait. You may need that 50 grand now. To you, that could be a lifesaver. So I, I don't agree with that entirely. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but most people don't have the luxury not to get the money they, they can now. Like the guy who sold the Kid Icarus, yeah, he sold it for nine grand. Maybe it's fifty grand or some some uh, wacko, you know, uh, years from now. But he wants the nine thousand dollars now. He needs the money now. I don't fault him for that, and you shouldn't either. And something something to be ashamed of either. Uh, that's why I think a lot of these guys coming over from comics and coins are seeing this and willing to buy when these when these guys are selling, even if it's over market. He said, and it is over market. I've seen it. It's way over market. Um, I think ultimately the market's going in an upward trajectory. We're going to have your dips here and there because that's a lot of speculation. Again, uh, you know, and I, gotta, I met these people, but they're they're very biased in and them, you know, uh, saying it's going to go in an upward direction because their businesses 
uh, whether it's water, heritage auctions, relies on this being an upward trend. And I think with uh, with WADA, do they get a percentage grading it of what the ga- graded games will sell for? Uh, let me look that up real quick, what the policy is here, because I don't want to misrepresent uh, WADA, what the, what the price is. What is the price here? Uh, how much will it cost to certify my game? Service levels. So, okay. So they do it based upon declared value. Okay. So at least it's not CGC. CGC, a lot of their high, high end, they take like a percentage of what that, what the comic costs in order to grade it. It's weird. So they, they base it upon declared value. So if the declared value is $500 plus, uh, it's $65 to, to grade it for a sealed or loose game and $85 for a box game. And then it's a little bit less there. So you're looking at maximum $85. That's actually not a terrible value. It's actually not just because the case itself costs them money, obviously. And then obviously there's an upcharge there uh, for them to do the labor there. But most games under $500, you're looking at $40 for a complete box slash box. That's actually not, that's actually not bad. That's about, I think what VGA charged a little bit more than that uh, there. So that's good. Uh, there, um, and there's other things like game testing is five dollars. Make sure it works. Things like that. Graders report there, but still, I mean, uh, Wada's doing great and good for them for, for, for providing a business model that actually works versus VGA. And then obviously, uh, Comic Link Exchange or Certified Link, whatever people I met at Comic Con, they're making a lot of money off of this. And then Heritage is making a ton. From what I hear, Heritage not just has a. From what I hear, Heritage auctions makes not just a a. A, doesn't take take just a buyer's fee of twenty percent. They take a percentage from the seller, which I have never heard of in my in my absolute life before. So they're making bank off of this stuff here. Um, and this is the end of the article here. This is a long topic, but it's very dear to my heart. Um, is anyone's guess whether this moment in class of video game collecting will be looked at be looked back as uh, as a flash in the pan speculation bubble of the moment when everything's changed for good? Uh, Okay, I'm sorry. I totally misread that. Is anyone's guess, guess whether this moment in classic video game collecting will be looked back on as a flash in the pan speculation bubble or the moment when everything changed for good? But it's no small thing that many seasoned collectors are betting serious money on the up- upward tr- trend continuing. But these seasoned collectors aren't video game collectors. I think that's what we have to keep in mind. They have a different perspective of this and they have, they have more money than the average video game collector. So is it a speculation bubble? Sure. But that bubble can continue to grow as long as people, these people can spend the money. What happens, what's going to happen though, I think it's going to take a while. The same thing with comic books. What happens when these guys that are in their 60s, 70s with these comic books that are worth tons of money, what happens when they all, they all, they all go? They all have to pass everything down. There has to be replacement buyers. And unless the younger generation agrees that this stuff is worth a ton of money, um, it may not be a bubble that bursts, but they're not going to be able to make money back on some of these games. They won't. There's, uh, there's between 30, I, always, I say this to these people, there's between probably 30 and 50 games that are significant, significant in the pantheon of video games culturally and historically that are, are, that are rare enough and important enough that will probably command prices decades down the line, like huge prices, whether it's your Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda, you know, um, your, your NWC carts, has to be rare and significantly Historical, and when I say Super Mario Bros., yeah, if you want that first print run, it's going to be rare enough, and people are going to want it enough. But for staying events, probably not. And for a random Donkey Kong Country, I don't know about that. You know, that's that's the thing. That's the thing. Um, 
Yeah. There you have it. It's one of my longest topics ever, ever, but I feel it was very important to get these thoughts out there in a way that hopefully was coherent and uh, was the alternative uh, viewpoint that I wish showed up in this article to sort of say like, well, that's a possibility the upward trend will continue within your group, your group of like whatever you want to say, 50, 100, 150 uh, people spending all this money. But is it sellable outside of your group to other people? It's going to have to be because you're not going to be around forever to capitalize this. Or is it just really inner, collect, inner niche collecting competition? That's what I see it as at this point. And again, 99% of video game collectors will be okay having their cart or complete in box copy even. They'll be satisfied. I'm satisfied. I don't have many sealed games. I don't need it. It's the same thing. It's all good. <laughs> All right, we had a surprise uh, segment at the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo, a return segment. We're going to transition to here now. Woo! All right, Ian. Yes. Do we have a live tales? Tales from from the game the store game store. All right, so I'm just sitting at work. This is about a. Yeah, a week ago. And uh, this family walks in with their kid, almost adult son, their large adult son. I'm not sure. He looked like he was probably about 18. And he uh, comes up to the counter, and he's like, do you have Super Nintendos? I go, yes, I do. And I pointed to them. And his uh, mom asked, will these work on modern TVs? Smart question for a mom. Um, who probably you know hasn't played games in a while? And I said yes, they do. I said it's not ideal. And I said we have um, you know these these Retron consoles that will you know do the job. Uh, they hook up via HDMI. They're new. Uh, the graphics will be clear, and the input lag will probably be lower than if you were running an SNES through AV. And the kid shakes his head and looks at me and goes. Not gonna do. I'm a I'm a collectionist. I'm somewhat of a collectionist. Well, let's back up a second. Not a collector. No, a collectionist. A collectionist. Not a preservationist. Collectionist. A collectionist. Collectionist. And I had to bite my lips so freaking hard. So I looked at him, and at this point, it'd been a long day. Um, been a while. I started to turn sour like a lemon drop inside. I felt my soul dying. So. I was like, okay. And he was like, I'm just starting. I'm like, all right, I just wanted to make sure you know what you're getting into. There's going to be some input lag here, et cetera. So I go in the back, and I grab a Super Nintendo, and I hear the mom um, talking to him, being like, you know, I don't know if this is a good idea, et cetera, et cetera. You know, maybe you should get this other one. And once again, he goes, mom, I'm a collectionist. Wait, wait, what? Okay. Yes. He snapped on his mom. How, how old was this kid? I, he was anywhere between like 16 and 21. I couldn't tell. So in that awkward age where you still have to have your mom drive you places yeah, and he, put up with that. And, but, he right. was, but he was feeling his oats. He's like, all right, I'm a man. Oh, yeah. No, I'm no. my own man, mom. He, I'm a collectionist. He had something to prove. I'm proving I, I can sit on my own, mom. So 
I go and I get a Super Nintendo and I put it on the counter and he goes, is that official? And I go, yes, that's a Super Nintendo. <laughs> it was a standard Super Nintendo. Standard Super Nintendo. It wasn't a Model 2. And he goes, okay, just wanted to make sure. And he goes and he starts looking at games. And then he comes back and he picks up the Super Nintendo. And he's looking at it from every angle. And, and mind you, this was actually one of the nicer Super Nintendos that I've seen in a while. No fading. Everything no was, yellowing. Nope, everything was very clean. clean. And he goes, you know... I just, I'm particular about these things. I've heard about Chinese bootlegs. Bootleg Super Nintendo systems? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, I mean, it didn't make any sense. And of course, of course, if it's a bootleg, it must be Chinese. You know, bootlegs don't come from anywhere else. It's like the fucking North Pole. That's where Santa resides. China is where all the bootleggers reside. So I go, yes. It's a real Super Nintendo. And he goes, okay. I just, you know, wanted to make sure it looked right. (laughs) So I go in the back, and I go to get the cables for him. And he yells to me in the back room. He goes, do you have official cables? (laughs) I'm like, yes. And I give him the Super Nintendo controller. And it's obviously a real Super Nintendo controller. And he goes... Is this official or is this fake? And I said, I slipped a little bit. And I said, do you know what you're looking for? And he was like, yes, I'm a bit of a collectionist. So I bring him the cables and he picks up the fucking cables and starts looking. And he's like, do you have any in nicer condition? He wanted good condition AV cables for the Super Nintendo? So I put them down. I said, no. Um, I, I was like, these are the nicest ones I have. So then he goes back to the, the, the game case, and he starts looking at the games. And he goes, oh, um, he asked for, and, and sorry, it's not my favorite series. He said, I want, what's the title of Donkey Kong Country 2? Someone help me. Diddy Kong. Diddy Kong's Quest? Okay, yeah, that was it. He goes, um, can I get part three, Diddy Kong's Quest? And now I don't know the games that well, so I'm like, sure. And I go and I grab it, and I'm like, this is, that's the Dixie or Trixie one? Yeah, and I take it out, and I put it on the table, and he goes, no, I want Diddy Kong's Quest. And I was like, you just asked for part three. And he goes, well, no, no, put that back. He said, put that back. He said, I'll take Diddy, or D- Donkey Kong Country 2. So I grabbed it. And, uh, what of you was going to be wrong in that situation? <laughs> I, look, I got him what he asked for. He said, Whoa. Donkey Kong 3, Diddy Kong's Quest. And I was like, well, I don't know this stuff. So I got the Donkey Kong Country 3 that he asked for. Okay. You didn't look at the title on the cart, but okay. I just grabbed it. He, okay, he asked okay. for Donkey Kong Country 3. I'm, not, I'm just saying. I gave the brat Donkey Kong knew, Country 3. You knew this 3. kid was trouble. You know, you, you well, know he's a collectionist. Don- I, collectionist. I knew. So, I knew. Collectionists are like this. Yeah. Um, so, okay. yeah, then I rung him up. And uh, at that point, I just tuned out completely to whatever he was saying. I don't know what he was doing, stroking off in the store. Oh, come on, Ian. He's a collectionist. There's, there's children in the audience, oh, potentially. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, I rang him up and uh, they left. And the mom was like, we'll be back. And I gritted my teeth. <laughs> the end. Okay. So is that the first time? We have to like make sure that we are defining this word for Merriam-Webster, but collect, what a collectionist is, because I never heard this term in my life. <laughs> so when I, 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 2019 I, August, the collectionist. I posted uh, a little bit of that on Twitter. I was just like, as I'm going, I'm like, this is wow, ridiculous. And uh, people kept coming at me with uh, other fake names, but the best <laughs> one was collectionaire. Collectionaire? Yes. Like extraordinaire, but collection. Yes, there. exactly. So, yeah. so I'm going to do like a mashup of me and Gerard's, like my my face oh, they, with Gerard's they, they, uh, Someone actually did send that to me. They said uh, uh, Gerard the collectionist was Gerard what they the said. Yes. Well, that was interesting, Ian. Do you think he'll come back in the store when it once gets his own license and does have mom drive him anymore? Ma, <laughs> ma, I need to go to the collectionist place. <laughs> What has our generation done, Ian, with these kids? We may have collectionists. I normally like the kids who come into uh, the store to buy stuff. They're usually nice and interested. They ask questions. Mm-hmm. They know what they're talking about. Like, it's cool. You can tell they've done their work. I'm talking kids who are like 12 or 13. They're teaching their parents about this stuff. It's impressive. And those hormones kick in, they become collectionists. Yes. That's what happens. Something, something turns inside You start inside finding them. collectionists on they get weird fun- places on your yeah, body. Yeah, they, they, you start getting tingly sensations when you touch certain uh, game cartridges. And it happens, Ian. It happens yes. to me. I mean, I think I was 12. It was early onset collection. Early onset collectionism. <laughs> that's what happened to me. Well, that's a, that was an interesting story, Ian. You're welcome. That's a, that was a good live tales from the game store. Yeah. And we're back. Maybe we'll see more tales from the game store in the future. Keep watching there. <laughs> Keep watching. <laughs> All right. One more topic. We got a Patreon poll topic. Ian's on here to to give his expert description of the Patreon, but it's patreon.com slash CU podcast. Uh, there's a weekly writing. I just put up a writing about pizza. I put up a writing about the difference between uh, pizza, New York, New Jersey pizza, and everywhere else, and the differences and why they exist there. Um, and then uh, Ian does his monthly hangout and other stuff there. But you also have a Patreon poll. You have a Patreon poll topic that you, that you, that you, um, you vote on every week. So number number three, would Pat ever grade any of his video games at twenty three percent? Okay. At at the second place, I switched out the the traded one because he wasn't here. What would your ideal game collection consist of if price was no object? Um, and number one, why are creators getting burned out on YouTube? Why? As I sip my water. Um, this is a general conversation just because not every, uh, not every content creator is getting burnt out on YouTube, but a lot are, and this isn't just me saying that my opinion, it's people I know, I won't say their names, but my, in my circle, I'll just say of acquaintances and, and colleagues, there's probably four to five that are burnt out on YouTube. I am semi burnt out on YouTube, semi, not entirely. It's still enjoyable. It's still fun, obviously. Um, and there are others that I talk to through friends that are like, yeah, I know people that are done with this and there's just going through the motions at this point, creating content and doing it. But why are creators getting burnt out on YouTube? Well, with any entertainment medium uh, or job, job slash entertainment medium, when you do something for a long time, 
you get complacent, first of all. And it doesn't mean that you don't appreciate what you have, but it's hard to do the same job for, at this point, a lot of these YouTubers, I've been on YouTube for 11 years. A lot of YouTubers have been on YouTube for like at least eight years, six, seven years, eight, nine years, 10 years, 11 years. Going back to, you know, YouTube started blowing up, you want to say 2005, it started blowing up 2006, 2007, around there. So a lot of YouTubers have been on for over a decade. And with any job, whether it's a job I had in the office, I guess I started getting sick of my jobs after two or three years. You know, when I was working in a cubicle, Again, not to say it's, a, it's the same roughness or same thing, but that's just the way humans are. But with entertainment, I think a lot of times people want to get locked in. It's the same reason why, like, for example, Seinfeld uh, ended it, it, its ninth season, and they were all making uh, tens of millions of dollars a year for Seinfeld. People still love Seinfeld. It was one of the most popular shows still. But after nine years, Seinfeld's like, this is enough. I'm done. That's enough. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to go. Glad you guys liked it. I want to do other things. Doing the same thing for year after year. Again, these are, these are people, the most popular people, celebrities, people that do a movie series, people that do play James Bond. I'm done. Did it like Sean Connery was done in the 60s. They had to spend a ton of money to get him back for, for Diamonds Are Forever. He was freaking done. Yeah, there was he wasn't getting paid enough. Things like that happen. Sure. But sometimes people are just done. They're done acting in roles. They're done with uh, radio shows or podcasts. They're, they're done playing sports on a particular team or just done with sports in general. The human mind is, is kind of fragile when it comes to this. And there's boredom sets in. But this isn't. YouTube, though, is not necessarily a radio show where you have a salary you know, or a, a movie series where you're getting paid a lot of money and you're doing a movie every two or three years. You know, uh, YouTube is very fragile. It's very fragile with what the audience wants, but it's also fragile behind the scenes with the algorithm changes. What was it? About April, May of last year, all of a sudden, the views uh, by default started going down on, on YouTube for, for my stuff. Not just my stuff, though, uh, but it w- went down on, on older, popular um, um Older popular podcast segments like the state of retro game collecting would always make money no matter what, just because it was a cool thing. It got in the algorithm. People saw it when they probably searched for video game collecting. But but for Pat the NES Punk videos, so that the last few newer Pat the NES Punk videos have not done nearly as well as the ones in the past did. And it's not because I've done doing them less. No, it's because of the algorithm. People are finding them less. And not just me um, with stuff like that. Um, a couple other people, uh, I won't say who they are, they did videos of long-standing series or just doing videos that they usually do, and all of a sudden they were doing just lower numbers. And that's very discouraging when you're a content creator. When something for years has been happening, uh, where, oh, I mean, let's say I do a video, Path the Point video, Food Market Madness, whatever. Say it gets 150,000 views over like six months, seven months, uh, 200,000 views. Now it does 50,000 views. It's the same content, same quality, something I think people want, and there's always that core audience, but everyone else doesn't find it and discover it. It's very, it's very um, challenging uh, in entertainment when that happens. Because we don't get paid up front you know, for YouTube. We don't. So it, it's, it's really what, what's the time served versus, versus how do I make a living? Because content creators are making a living. Um, you know, Either they quit their job or they're doing it on the side. But either way, it's a living at this point. This is a living. Me doing the podcast. Uh, me doing YouTube videos. It's a living that we're making. So this is something we have to deal with. But but it's also the pressure to making sure your content is what the audience wants as well. So there's YouTubers that 10 years ago, uh, the best example is uh, I can give, uh, Mark Bussler, Classic Game Room. 
He was a you know a big big YouTuber, like ten years ago, even probably seven six years ago. He's not doing those YouTube videos anymore. He moved on. Um, the audience changes. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with, keep up with uh, content that you know the audience wants. The audiences get older. They move on. They go to different platforms. There's a lot more competition with streaming, with Amazon Prime and Hulu, what have you. Soon to be Disney Plus. Different audiences, and with that, sometimes it's tougher. Um, and some content creators have have no problem doing it or, and want to do it and change with what the audience is happening. And it's a much longer, much younger audience on YouTube now, probably on average what it was ten years ago. Except probably for a fact, a lot. It's now it's a teenager. You know, probably early 20s audience versus what it was 10 years ago was probably a more well-rounded audience there. Um, some some people either don't want to do it or don't have the, the means to do it. Um, someone like me, I, I, I know what a younger audience wants. I don't want to do that. I don't want to provide that. That's just not what I, I have interest in. Um, that's the one thing. But but also, you know, some people can get depressed by that. And there are there are content creators doing content they absolutely despise just because they know that's what an audience wants on YouTube. But they can still be doing it, but they're still being they're still burnt out behind the scenes. You just don't know about it. You think they're mentally fine. You don't know that they are mentally depressed by, oh my God, this is now to me a nine to five. I am working in a cubicle. This is what they might be thinking. This to me is a cubicle job, turning out the same exact content for year after year after year, where to me it's just any other job. I could be making sandwiches somewhere instead. They're probably thinking that. You might not agree with that, but that's what that's what the human mind is like. After they've been doing the same thing that they're not enjoying anymore, so that's why I think they're getting burnt out. You know, I I think um, I think you have to be. I'm not saying you guys have to be like, oh, woe is woe is you. You guys are making money from doing content on YouTube, but if you're in that situation, think about how you would respond. Uh, where you're doing the same content, maybe you like to do this, uh, this content for year after year, but then either you know you want to try something else, but you, you know your audience wouldn't like it. I know a guy that's in that situation where he he's afraid to try to do new content because he thinks his audience will will, will just shit all over it, and he's probably right to some extent because that's how the algorithms work on YouTube, where they know what the audience wants to go after that. Plus, the algorithms change where uh, YouTube in general is no longer as personality built as it used to be. I mean, there's a whole article about you know the rise of the angry. You know the angry gamer people. Uh, you know a few who attacked me uh, over the past year, and those channels are not personality driven. They're driven on the type of content in that moment in time, because when you, when you click on the videos like that, you'll get the same same topic said by the same person, or or excuse me, the same topic by other people. You know the same topic by five different people, and people are just clicking on the same topic to be in their little echo chamber. I want people to agree with me. I'm just going to click on. Person A talking about why Last Jedi is bad. Person B is also why Last Jedi is horrible. Person C why Last Jedi is an abomination and, and it's it's worse it's worse than you know uh, massacres. You know person person uh, E or F. Oh, the Last Jedi uh, you know killed killed my kitten. And that's how YouTube is nowadays. Um, I remember a time where it was more geared towards your generic interests. And so if you like retro gaming. If you clicked on clicked on a retro gaming topic, oh, it'll recommend, oh, here's some other people doing retro gaming stuff. And I think that's gone down. I think it doesn't happen anymore. Again, it's not as personality and brand and channel-based as it is as topic-based. And, and the hierarchies up at the Alphabet Company, Google, YouTube, same thing. They they That's what they deem necessary to keep engagement going. Plus, it is geared towards, like, you know, now it's more corporate. We know that with, you know... Um, 
what's what's the clip from Jimmy Kimmel or Stephen Colbert from last night? What's what's the Ellen clip of the day? I I know that's part of it as well. I see the reason for that, but I wish it was more personality driven. The algorithm because it's it's definitely not at this point. It's definitely not. It's more about well, I don't care who's talking about the topic I want to hear about. I just want as many people as possible to talk about that topic, and I want to ingest and consume all that same topic for this day or two, and then I'll move on to the next topic that's hot. And I never go back to those videos ever again. That's the way more and more YouTube has been geared towards, I think, at least in the last year and a half, two years, if not longer, but de- definitely at least a year, last year, year and a half uh, there. Um, so that's why creators are getting burned out, is putting up with this, with the system, putting up with an audience that may be fickle or only know or like them for specific content, and they're afraid of branching out. It happened with this podcast. Uh, originally, we started doing the podcast, there was like, why are you doing this uh, content? And it's like, well, if not, you know, I can't. I couldn't survive on Pat the NES Punk and just Flea Market Madness. Maybe just Flea Market Madness. That would have been good. If, if this was a weekly Flea Market Madness channel, I think that would have went somewhere. I do think that because it would have been easy content to do every week. But I would have got sick of that. And it would have dried up anyway because of the flea markets. But you see my point. A lot of content creators are getting off of YouTube or finding alternative means of, of creating and making money. It's happening with, with doing uh, merch and certain NES guidebook stuff and doing movies and doing stuff on Patreon, doing podcasts, what have you. And that's the way we are not burning out entirely in the way we're surviving as, you know, as, as basically doing what we now has a, do as a, as, a, as a job. It's a job. So that's it for this CU podcast. Thanks so much for coming on board. Um, if you like us, we're on Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash CU podcast. And uh, I'll be next at, next I'm going to be at for sure, uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo. That is August, oh, that's uh, October 19th and 20th. The Super Nintendo Guidebook is proofed and signed off on for the most part. That's going to print now. It's printing. It's printing now. And the third print of the NES Guidebook is going to be back on stock, hopefully this week. For Ian Ferguson, not here. I'm Pat Contry. Thank you so much for listening to my babbling.